wrote on the polo verse was just Ottawa bike polo, we a club. <laughs> uh-huh. And that's a great post. No explanation. Welcome to another amazing edition of the Northside Polo Podcast. Long awaited, but you've waited long enough. It's time to dive in. So I'm here with my friends and teammates, of course. I got Alex. Hey, what's up? And Liam. Hey. And uh, we got an episode for you today, a super long interview, but more on that later on. Let's get to the news. And I'm going to start off the news today by discussing something I stumbled upon, which is fantastic. They got some good stuff cooking in in Europe. You guys might have heard of Facebook's rebrand as Metaverse. Well, we now have the Poloverse. And it's not got anything to do with Facebook, which is a big plus in my opinion. So basically, (laughs) this is a new message board, kind of like social media. It has message like DMs in it, um, specifically for bike polo. And it has all kinds of group functions and interesting things as far as that's concerned. So if you have not heard of the Poloverse yet, I encourage you to check it out. A lot more European dominated, but hey, we can change that starting right here on the podcast. Let's get our NA's homies out there and uh, take over this Poloverse. So the web address is poloverse.net. Sign up, make your profile and join the conversation. Honestly, I am, I would love Bike Polo to get off Facebook. I understand it's like such an important tool and it's been like, honestly, probably influential in how Polo like grew as a sport and everything. But uh I would like to not have all these conversations and information and images and all this stuff on Facebook. (laughs) To be honest with you, like the biggest part of the reason why I have Instagram is because of bike polo. Like I realized really early on, a big part of this game is knowing people and asking people to play with you and having pictures of me playing polo would, I mean, raise my rep. This is what rookie (laughs) Gavin thought. So I got Instagram and uh, Facebook is the same for the group features and just the messenger and all this stuff. It just links us all together. But if this is a good substitute, hey, let's get on it. I mean, I think that was probably the impetus. It was like a bunch of people being like at Polo. They're like, yeah, the only reason I use Facebook is for Polo. And then they're like, wait, we could just all ditch. Po- we could all ditch, not ditch Polo, ditch Facebook and start our own Poloverse. So, yeah, this seems pretty European focused right now, I will say. I'm a little disappointed. I just clicked on the marketplace to see bikes and frames, and there's just two people saying testing the subcategory so it becomes visible. <laughs> it's it's starting sale. off. It's starting. There's off. nothing it's, for sale yet. I want to buy the beta. Buy a bike. You know, like, but yeah, we're gonna pump it full of people, and b- the more people that join it, the better it'll be. Like that's just the bottom line. So get on it. Yeah, and check it daily. And thanks to Christina for letting us know about this. Yes, field by, reporter Christina by way of Berlin. I think it's a Berlin thing so yeah poloverse.net it's my homepage now all right what about these tournament results guys because we had a few big tournaments go down in the past few weeks and we need to update the homies on what actually happened who took down these tournaments so who's starting us off with this first one here i'll start off with commonwealth classic coming straight out of boston bike polo you know i'm just gonna say had had i been able to go there these results may be different um, but you know, we'll never know, <laughs> you know, we'll never know. Um, so, uh, team that took it all was more sugar 
That was Diego, Pete Abrams, and Aaron Hand. A little preview. We're going to have Diego coming up on a future episode of the Northside Polo Podcast. Yeah, that's an um, exciting one. People should be marking that one on their calendar for sure. Yeah, but there was lots of good. Well, there was there was some live streams, and we were, I think, we were all watching along. Relatively, you know, I caught a few games here and there, and uh, yeah, it was pretty uh, intense. It's it's really <laughs> funny. I'm really I've gotten really really good at not getting sports results spoiled for me. Where like I'm really good with F1 and uh, other sports that like I care about about having it so that I'm like not checking my phone so that like social media will spoil a result for me until I can watch the live stream. And I completely like Diego posted on Facebook like pictures of them winning before I got to watch the live stream. And I like didn't it didn't occur to me that like this was a bike polo result and that, you know, if I if I didn't want to have the live stream spoiled. Because I was I was working that day and you guys were like messaging in our group chat like, you know, oh you gotta watch this live stream. It looks so sick. Like these yeah. games are super fast paced. And I'm like, oh I'm gonna go home. I'm gonna watch this. It's gonna be awesome. And then I'm like getting gas uh-huh. and looked at my phone and I'm just like, you know, Diego with a trophy. I'm like, oh okay. Well I got <laughs> the games. They were they were awesome. But it I, I do genuinely miss or wish that I, I could have watched it uh, unspoiled. Yeah, that's a shame. It's always more fun to watch them when we don't know what's going to happen. But I mean, when more sugar is playing, you have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen, it seems like. But not taking away anything from the like miss, plan B, uh, Bob Ross combination team that finished in second, that final and even the semifinals and all the way up. This is probably the most competitive tournament in NAs this year. And it was a delight to watch. So thank you to those guys at Fuck Yeah Bike Polo for streaming it. I think Gabe was the one on the camera and he did a great job. It's not easy to do that on your phone. And he did a really good job considering. Thanks. All right. Next tournament, Alex. All right. Next tournament, there was a uh, Halloween. You know, we just won't stop talking about this tournament on this podcast. Um, get some some other people that also also won it. Unfortunately, we didn't get to go defend our title. There were some border issues, some work issues. Um, I think we all know that, yeah, Liam's uh, holding his trophy now. You guys can't see it. <laughs> you can't see this on the podcast, but let me just put this back. We we had uh, the last year was 666. So they did the like pentagram devil sign on it. And uh, we had some young siblings over before Halloween. They're like, oh, your Halloween decorations are great. And I'm like, oh, that stays up all year round. <laughs> 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 guys, tell them who won it. Though. Right. Like, but the, the, the winner, the winners of Halloween seven the uh r.i.p grand rapids bike polo court because they're this was the last year that it's going to be played in the park that it's in wow. and i can't drag out this result any longer it was uh mucho diego running it back with uh jennifer spencer and matt bolomba yeah that sounds about right to me yeah Pretty i cool uh team. Butcher, butchering the last names there a little bit but mucho wow. i mean diego just on a on a heater yeah, it's undeniable at this point. He's been crushing everything. He's got to be, it's not an award, but NA's player of the year. Yeah, like, I mean, it could be from now on, you know. I, how, I don't know how you could give it to anyone else. Maybe, no one else maybe, has got five trophies. Maybe we'll do uh, an end of year episode where we give out awards. <laughs> we don't have, the, I don't know if we have the like reporting for the whole region to know like how everything's yeah. doing, especially the South. We get pretty blind <laughs> as it goes further South. But Diego definitely, I think, take that award. I don't think anyone's going to argue with me. Yeah, I think this year it's not close. Something else pretty remarkable happened at the Hello Meme tournament, though. You could even say that it's really a turning point in the sport of bike polo. Yeah. In the in the final minutes of 
was it the the winner's bracket final winner's bracket the- i think it was the loser's bracket final so bracket the winner final. would go play the grand final against mucho in the in the dying seconds or dying minutes uh we had a lobster trap in a what? on on broadcast mm-hmm. so the situation was pretty clear 30 seconds left on the clock um brandon and the team from alaska is up i think they're up like three two at this point so brandon being the nimble bike handler that he is is able to somehow dismount his bike and squish the ball between his rear wheel and the concrete and he can stand up there and he does his best to deflect oncoming attacks with the polo mallet the opponents are stunned a little bit angry and the crowd erupts in a mixture of cheers, booze, and confusion. But one thing's for certain, bike pole has been changed forever. <laughs> yes. What do you guys yeah. think? Is this going to be moved around? Like, are we going to see this kind of lobster trap? Some people are calling it a crab trap because there's only one person, not the trifecta of the lobster trap. Is this going to be seen more often? Are we going to see teams, once they get the lead, just trap it up and run the clock? I mean, I hope not. It would be... <laughs> I. I I don't I don't want to see the lobster trap have to be removed from the game. I think uh, with great power comes great responsibility. And I just I think that that Brandon executed it properly here. You know, Halloween in the rain in that situation. I think it's appropriate. But if we were at NAs, if we're at like a different tournament, I just I hope that as a community, we were able to handle the responsibility that uh, of the lobster trap. To be fair, the ref blowed the play dead and gave the team the time back and the ball. So it wasn't actually very advantageous. But I just want to I just want to clarify. Um, this is from firsthand witnesses accounts. Their favorite part is him yelling. It's a loophole the whole time he's standing on his bike and the refs are trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to read the rules again because I'm second guessing myself now. But yeah. really cool move by Brandon to see that you know, get pulled off and not affect the outcome of the game. Thank God. And uh, yeah, it was a great moment in polo history and um, no one copycat it, please. And, and most importantly, friend of the pod, longtime recurring guest, uh, Ashwin made a pretty dank meme about it. You know, we're going into the winter months when we start reviewing the memes on secondhand meme market page in the news segment. But, uh, I, I made a stupid logo out of it and people asked me to make stickers of it and I am. So I guess if you want stickers of it, message the pod and we'll, we'll see what we can do. An iconic moment forever immortalized in paper and glue. Yeah. I felt, I felt uh, responsible enough in part or by proxy to, to the spread of the lobster trap that I felt like I had to contribute to it. Yeah, the real onus goes up to the Yukon and Alaska. They got all yeah. kind of zany things going on up there that we just aren't privy to until they come down and treat us. Mm-hmm. We can get more moments like this. Should we uh, dive into this interview then? We've spent a long time on the news here, guys, and we have a lot of conversations still ahead of us. <laughs> yeah, it was this was a long conversation that we had. Yes. So as we go through this interview, we have Dave from Lightfoot all the way from Australia who's coming on and we talk about a whole host of topics um, ranging from the Lightfoot V3 geometry to rules changes to how he started in the game, the scene in Australasia and that region. Check the description of the podcast for timestamps. If you find that you're getting a little bored with what we're talking about, because we do get in the weeds quite a bit in some areas, all of it is great. There's something there for everyone. 
But if you find we're getting in the weeds, check the description because there are great segments all throughout this interview and you can skip to the ones that you think you'll be most interested in. I mean, we're kind of figuring out how to do the podcast, how to do the interviews, how we want to structure things. So this one's significantly longer than the other interviews we've done. And if you like it, let us know. And if you don't like it, you know, let us know. Turn it off and walk away. <laughs> That's too damn else. bad. <laughs> like yeah. a, it's more <laughs> content for you people. If you want to yeah. listen to Polo, we listen to Polo stuff, okay? And Dave has some really cool opinions and he's obviously thought a lot about the game. I learned a lot from this conversation. Like yeah. there was a lot of things that I thought I knew about Lightfoot and about Australia that uh, I did not, that I, I did not know or I was incorrect about and Dave, you know, gets into. So it's definitely worth it. listening to. All right. Without any further ado, let the tape roll. Hi, Dave. Uh, welcome to the Northside Polo Podcast. I know we're all really happy to have you here. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. really appreciate it. No, no problem. How are you doing today? Everything going well? Yeah, Melbourne's a bit strange, as probably everyone in the international community knows. We've had um, a bunch of lockdown, but I don't really want to want to focus too much on that because there's uh, right. good stuff to talk about with Polo. Well, let's jump right into it then, because we got a lot of stuff to talk about, a lot of ground to cover with you today. So let's make sure we get to it by jumping right into it. So as you just mentioned, you're based in Melbourne, Australia. Sure thing. And I think we're all curious and everyone in Northside region would love to know, you know, what's the scene like in Australia and just in that South Pacific region and particularly in Melbourne? Yeah, sweet. Well, it's, it's obviously amazing and you should come uh, when, <laughs> when such a thing is possible. Um, yeah, no, it's it's... How can I, how can I, without being too, uh, <laughs> without loving my scene too much? No, I really like Melbourne. Obviously it's, it's my polo home. Um, we've got a great court in the, quite in the middle of the city, uh, which, which is much like, it's a bit, a bit like Carl, and, Carl Anderson in Seattle. It's, it's very central. It's got a nice surface. It's quite low boards. Um, but it's where I cut my teeth and I love it to death. It's super nice and it's very visible to the public. So it's, it's easy to get to get people to watch games. Uh, it's fantastic. Nice. That makes um, a big difference. What's yeah. the, uh, what's the regular turnout like for pickup? Like what kind of numbers are we talking? I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's difficult to remember back. <laughs> yeah, we haven't played in a while, but it's, we, you know, when I first started, we were playing, you know, two days a week in two locations and there was, you know, 20, 30 people on a Sunday at, at Flagstaff, which is our, which is our city court. Um, and then more recently, uh, yeah, we fluctuate just like any club. And then I guess on a good day at Flagstaff, we'll have, you know, 10 to 15 on a Sunday, which, which tends to be the larger, the larger day. Uh, but we, we occasionally do, you know, Wednesdays, um, we do have a bit of an issue with that court in that it is booked quite heavily by soccer players and, and netballers. Mm. So we have our, we have Fridays, which are, which are not as popular for other sports. And we've obviously been trying to increase our days, but but, you know, if you want to increase your days, you also have to turn up. So given that we have a, a somewhat inconsistent turn up at times, it's difficult to, you know, ask for space and then not use it. And and, and so Sundays and Fridays have been our mainstay with Wednesdays as a new play night. Um, but yeah, yeah it's, um, it is what it is at the moment. One thing that is like, I always love when I travel to clubs is that some clubs just have really specific styles of play, right? Like if I think in Canada, like Vancouver, they're always passing as much as they can. Ottawa, we're taking shots from everywhere. Mm -hmm. Is there a Melbourne style that you would say? Like what is the trademark Melbourne player do? Yeah, there really, there really is. I actually realized, how can I put this? I only, I say, I, 
I'd forgotten how much I guess we have a style until recently. One of our one of our players, Dante, who played a lot in Melbourne and then kind of learnt to play in Melbourne and then moved to Hobart, which you know is in Tasmania. And I, pl- I played with him down in Hobart, and I always loved playing with Dante. And he came back to Melbourne for a, for a, a holiday before taking a trip around Australia in his four wheel drive. And when he got here, we got to play a game of pickup together. And and in just that one game of playing with him, I realised that there's something that he clearly you know clearly clearly learned from traveling because he went to, he went to Seattle and played as well and came over here and there's there's kind of a vibe that Dante you know personified in that game which really reminded me that you know it, it doesn't there's something about playing in Melbourne that's that's very North American in its style because people like Dante myself uh, Ned Damon who more or less invented the club first played in Vancouver um, so we're heavily heavily influenced by that by that Northwest style. Um, and, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, um, I think what the Northwest style is in the simplest, um, it's pretty polo. I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> that's, that's the idea, right? It's, I think when I played in Seattle, which was the first place I played that wasn't Melbourne, um, that was international just before Florida in 2000. I played in Vancouver too, but much the same. Um, it's about passing. It's about involving all your teammates. It's about, you know, it's about, directing the ball uh, where you want it, where you want it to go it isn't all about big shots it always comes back to me about that uh, I think it's the hockey influence that's always what mm. I think like I, I mean because we're in Canada I guess yeah. maybe that's not the case in the US but I always see that and I'm like this is the hockey play this is the basketball play this is the like people that I feel like there's North American like North American centric sports like basketball sure. and hockey that they have that sort of passing rotational play that yeah. you know can definitely translate into polo but I feel yeah. like you see less of it in uh, like the more outside of North America you go, but it's cool that Melbourne, I guess, has aspects of that because you guys brought that. Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's also about. I think it's. It's definitely about the sports that you're surrounded by and the environment you you swim in, so to speak, with regard to like you know the nature of passing and let's say soccer and you know the the, the soccer vibe in Europe has definitely had a huge influence over the way that they play, um, and even the way that they they you know they rule the game. Uh, yeah. and, and adjudicate the rules but I think m- more than that not more than that but definitely something that affects that is is the court you play on I think one of the things I Huge. realized one of the things about Seattle which I find interesting which I, I don't know if I've mentioned super publicly is I I find it interesting that the the Cal Anderson court is quite good but Seattle has a lot of rain and what that basically means is that you can't ride like an idiot all the time and so my guess is that a lot of the passing play there has been uh, an adaptation to not being able to, a combination of not being able to drive stupid lines because you'll likely slip because um, the court isn't super grippy. It's, it's right on the edge, which, which has forced people to develop a style that's not so, not so risk-taking. And also I think, I think the Americans are a little risk averse with regard to not wanting to crash into each other. I mean, equipment's expensive, you know, like no one wants to get injured. So mm. There's a number of forces there, you know, obviously the sports that influence people, um, the court, the court, the surface quality, and then the, and then I guess the competitive vibe and how that plays out um, as a, as a culture. So I've seen that play out in different ways all over the world. And, and it's, um, and I'd like to think that Mel, uh, in Melbourne, what I try to do is, is, yeah, is, is kind of balance those aspects so that it's, so that it can be as fast as possible without being dangerous. Um, and we can, you know, I, 
you can drive passing play and not be too not too many pot shots and not too much random play basically i mean so there's, there's no uh aussie rules polo no, yet yet <laughs> no i mean i think i guess i guess i'd be loath to say we have our own style because we're just so you know we we have been influenced by others and so yeah i don't know I, i'm not really i don't think it's fit to comment on that i think other people are probably better to comment on that when they visit you know i yeah i'll leave that as it is yeah so can you uh can you tell us a little bit about your sort of journey in polo like when did you start playing i guess you said in yeah. seattle how did how did no, that so, well, yeah 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 sure thing well happen. i'd i'd been basically one of my very best friends um ben um he'll be listening for sure uh ben levi he we've we've known each other for years and been flatmates previously to to pre-polo let's say um and we lived in separate cities at that point he lived in sydney i lived in melbourne and when he would come and play tournaments in melbourne he would stay at my place and for quite a few years before I started to play, well, not, I'd say, you know, it feels like quite a few years, but it was probably only 18 months or so. He would say, you know, you've got to come check bike polo out because I had a big history of cycling. I was a competitive cyclist in, I used to race downhill. I used to, you know, ride cross country, not really competitively. I'm not much of a, an aerobic athlete. Uh, and I also used to ride competitive bike trials, which, yeah, so it's just like an obstacle course on a bike for people who don't. Yeah, who have never interacted with the sport, which everyone has now with Danny McCaskill and those guys kind of <laughs> popularizing it. So used to do a lot of that, um, played a lot of hockey as a kid and, you know, play, even played unicycle hockey for a, for a while. Uh, oh, sweet. That must cool. have a lot of carryover between unicycle hockey and polo. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, especially I'd, I'd say it's just, it's just a similar sport in terms of, you know, being, knowing what you enjoy, you know, if you, if you enjoy that, you're probably going to enjoy bike polo. So I guess he knew that I was, super into bikes and super into um to sports so he would always say come down come down and at that sport, at that point i was i just started a business and i was climbing kind of three or four days a week and i was pretty busy and i was sporting a pretty uh, a pretty good shoulder injury that i was trying to nurse back to health so polo looked like a huge risk to me so i kind of came down and had to go on his bike which i subsequently learned was an absolute piece of trash that probably turned me off the sport for at least six months um <laughs> but uh yeah. And then it got to the point where I kind of, yeah, my interest peaked. Um, and, and he basically, he built me a bike and entered me in a tournament, um, which was a kind of a mixer tournament. So I flew to Sydney and, and yeah, he built me a bike. Cause I, I mean, being a cyclist person, I don't, you know, life's too short to ride shit bikes is that, you know, yeah. so I wasn't, <laughs> so he made me a, a quite a nice polo bike, you know, I mean, for today's standards and the many bikes I've gone through, it's still, you know, not great, but um, but yeah, so I played a tournament. It was called the Queen's Birthday Classic, I believe. It was the Queen's Birthday weekend in 2012. Um, and that was the first time I played polo. And, and yeah, I mean, I don't know if hooked, if the word hooked fully captures how um, how captivated I was by the sport. It was, it was yeah, it was pretty instant. So I came home, came back to Melbourne and, and yeah, started playing pretty instantly. And, and, and yeah, I got very hooked. I was lucky enough to to have, uh, have a Canadian player, um, uh, Steve Taylor, who was living in Melbourne at the time. He's a very strong player, much stronger than the majority of players in our scene. Uh, and he, for better or worse, you know, just kept knocking me off my bike and, and just yeah, really pushing me. And, and I really loved it. And I said, you know, don't stop. And, um, and I was able to, through that kind of really competitive interaction, uh, yeah, to, to get better quite quickly, which was, yeah, which was great fun, played, 
you know, Damon, as I said, OG guy in Melbourne, kind of invented Melbourne bike polo and still still playing. It's one of the most competitively successful. He's out Chris Hammersley, you know, wins everything. <laughs> um, and yeah, he kind of took me under his wing and, and we went and played Florida Worlds in Florida together. I mean, him and uh, his uh, his um, playing partner, Anya. Um, she's a really strong female player. So I played with them. We made the final day, which was a real boon for me because I just didn't expect. Uh, but I guess the thing I took out of that Florida tournament was that I got to play in Vancouver and I got to play in Seattle and that was when I met I met Koyo and I met Sean and I met all the people who would come to seriously influence everything I did in bike polo from that from mm-hmm. then on so it's pretty well I'm glad the the I think the only thing that like the thing that's most people have taken away from that Florida tournament that has just lived on in the polo zeitgeist is the uh you want to play like that <laughs> I, I was i was like oh were you involved in that like i i'm like oh, I'm like, oh boy <laughs> yeah God, it was a, it was a super cool tournament yeah it was really good and it was my first it was literally one of my first tournaments you know a, a very serious tournament so it really yeah it, it blew me away um and and really set the stage for coming back and trying to yeah just trying to be more more competitive but yeah also just just trying to grow the scene and realize what's possible. Cause when you see something like that and you come back to your scene, it's, you know, it's like, well, damn, what can I do to make this more like that in, in all the ways that I, I appreciate yeah. the value of that sort of thing. Cause it was just an incredible interaction, you know, and it was, it really set me up well. And I'm super grateful for all the tournament organizers. I mean, in every tournament, but, but that one, especially it was very special. And it's pretty cool because you, you start there and you, you keep going and you've had kind of a storied career in bike polo. I mean, you played in some pretty big tournaments and on some really notable teams. I'm thinking, you know, recently plan B at Cordoba uh, world championships, but also fist and a mm-hmm. whole bunch of other ones. You've even won some Australasia championships, which mm-hmm. is pretty cool. Just one um, at this point came close last time, but just one. Just one. Not plural okay. just yet. They'll pull me up on that. If it's plural, they'll pull me up. <laughs> okay. Good to know. I, I good thought you know. were trying to spell Australia, not Australasia. And I was like, Gavin cannot spell oh, Australia. To save his yeah. life. <laughs> <laughs> Australasia makes bad. more sense. Yeah, like, we're trying yeah. to change it to Oceania because there's no Asian tournaments. Yeah. You know, I guess we'll the question, yeah. the question I'm going for here though, is are there any teams that really stand out to you as like, a highlight of your career or a tournament result that uh, you can speak to that was, you know, a highlight for you? Yeah. I mean, I think that first Australasians, it'd be hard to go past that. Um, uh, mainly, you know, I'd been playing for seven months. I'd been practicing just so much and I, I just had visualized, you know, doing well at that tournament but, and playing with a really good friend, Andrew, and obviously playing with Sean, it was, it was just amazing. Um, you know, it was, it was a strange one. Cause you know, we got, we got the label of the ringer team, but, you know, because, you know, Sean had, Sean had flown in from Seattle. And, um, but I think, I think retrospectively looking back, because I, I mean, you know, you always look back on things like that and you think, you know, was it the right thing to do to, you know, to, to bring a player in who, who was clearly better than everyone else. And, um, and it's not like we stormed, you know, we didn't storm it and beat everyone. We, you know, we lost, we lost the game and we, you know, we were, we were it was close in many regards, but that, that one really stands out to me um, mainly because it was, it was it was a very big tournament for Australia, and we, I guess we've never gone back to that that size of a tournament. Mm. The sport the sport became a lot more competitive after that, and I guess that was a sign of things to come. That tournament was incredibly competitive, um, and and yeah, I, it was it was it was a, a turning point. It was when Lightfoot was first launched um, by Brooke and Steve Chamont. Um, so I was there for that, and they you know they gave a frame, and the person they gave that frame to was Dante, who I've 
you know, already mentioned as being pivotal in, you know, in kind of moving to Hobart and, and, you know, really supporting that scene. So, yeah, I think that, that tournament stands out to me in many regards as a, as a turning point um, and a sign that, you know, the scene was going to get more competitive for sure. Um, yeah, it was great. So I think that one stands out. There's obviously so many other tournaments and I wouldn't want to take away from anyone, I, you know, playing with, with Ned and Dasha in, um, in Timaru was huge. Um, yeah, they're all, you know, but that one stands out particularly because it has a multifaceted, yeah, it's definitely, definitely the one that stands out. That's awesome. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times polo eras get measured by, by tournaments. Like you have the big tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the times I, I think it's worlds, but sometimes there's like a big North Americans or, or whatever, but that at least I know, I know for Toronto, like when Toronto hosted North Americans, that was like mm-hmm. a big turning point and a chapter in the club for a lot of, of players here. Sure. Um, and that was, that was before my time here. So it's kind of, it's interesting seeing how for me, all these people are just vets, but to them, the turning point is sort of the pre North America, like when they hosted North Americans versus the players they got after hosting North Americans. Um, and it's, yeah, you just big tournaments define, mm-hmm. I think people's experience, um, and it's great because, yeah, you get that extra competitiveness injected into the local clubs and you can see it like it's like a disease. It just tri- it spreads around. Maybe that's a bad metaphor these days, but it's yeah. <laughs> the excitement spreads. Right. And then people you see the level of play pick up. Yeah, it can. I mean, it cuts both ways because, I mean, if anyone's listened to that podcast you did with um, with Mike from Timaru, you know, it's it's it cuts both ways. And he, you know, after Worlds in Timaru, they didn't get what you would expect is the injection of energy. So, yeah, it's it's it can have both both effects. Yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about um, some of the biggest differences between those those really big, you know, seminal tournaments, and then some of the the, the more regional ones that you've been to. I guess I guess I could talk about like there's a couple of ways they're different. Obviously, they're quite culturally different in having played in different, I guess, cities and, and countries. I got to play the Asian Championship in Japan uh, in 2018. All the years are melding together at this point. Uh, but that was pretty amazing. Playing in Japan was just incredible. And at that level, at that level, it's obviously, I mean, places like Asia, it's very inclusive in terms of even the, even the highest level tournaments have a lot of depth, uh, which I think even North Americans, I guess that most of the tournaments have quite a bit of depth in terms of they, they try to include everybody, you know, this, I mean, it's obviously no newbies, but that, you know, that's, yeah, that's fair. I'm trying to think of the things that, that stand out to me as, as I guess differences at, at, at those levels. I, I really enjoy regional tournaments because they're an excuse to get together with, with close friends. And I haven't, I haven't experienced a lot of regional tournaments internationally. I guess the two major ones that I've played in, I played Clash of the Mallets in Salinas in California. And I played, uh, just trying to think of the other one I played, which was, and then I played a mixer in Santa Cruz. Um, called Shitfest. So I guess not really a tournament, just kind of a social mm-hmm. event. But what happens in our in our neck of the woods is the regional tournaments are a real excuse to get together with your mates and, and party. Um, so the, the competitive, I would say that you dial down the competitive spirit. Um, I mean, the final is always very competitive. And I find that competing with my friends at the highest level is really amazing because you get to you get to tread that line where you're still trying to knock them off their bike, but you're trying to do it as fairly as possible. And I think that... <laughs> You know, playing with someone like Dante, I'm going to mention him again. He's one of the guys who plays hard as nails. But, you know, if he, he really treads that line, he, he gets it right, you know, 99 times out of 100 where he's really trying to win the ball, but but he really won't tread over that line and, and make, you know, make a dick move to achieve that goal. And, and I think that's what 
when you play with people within your region and you know them personally, the likelihood that they will step over that line um, intentionally and and do something that is a little outside the rules is so low. So almost in playing people in playing against people that you know, you have yeah, there's this there's this wonderful feeling of being able to take it as far as you want um, and and it be it be fair and there be no um, yeah there be no ambiguity and you, and you know that you have to get off the court and be mates. And whereas you go to a worlds and and there is that structural separation between people both hierarchically and culturally and and I guess that can play out as being comp- hyper competitive in a way that you know takes away from that you know playing that edge and I, I really I guess what I love to do I mean you know and this is why I like playing and, and getting better is I, I really like playing on that edge where you're you know right on the edge of control and you're trying to exact a, a move that you know is a little bit iffy but you're trying to stay in control so that you don't do anything outside the rules and mm-hmm. and that's something probably that happens in those regional tournaments uh, and obviously there's a forgiveness in those regional tournaments that if you make a mistake that people understand that you're not um, i get a lot of i get a lot of um forgiveness in those tournaments which which is really mm-hmm. useful for getting better you know you have to people say to me sometimes you know at these to- you'll go to a tournament and and this isn't something that it happens to all players who play at any level and they travel they'll say people will say you know well, how do you how do you get better how did you get to this point and for better or worse, I usually have to say to people, you just have to be prepared to fall off yeah. um, a lot. And and, <laughs> and like disproportionately, you know, if you the, almost like I'm the person falling off the most in most situations. And in fact, I've had to wind that back in my competitive game, you know, like um, definitely have to wind back the, the dabs. Um, and so, yeah. I always say if you're not falling, you're not trying. <laughs> it's it's seriously and, true, yeah. It's, it's 100% it's, it, right. It's always bittersweet. Like I know this weekend I'm going to be playing against Gavin mm. at the Northside's Invitational. And it's uh, it's bittersweet playing against him because I, I hate to lose. And, you know, <laughs> he's, a, he's, he's a great player. But, yeah, I don't, don't give him an inch. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying so, Alex. But I do agree with you. Um, it's really important to, to dab and to fall and to make mistakes and – these kinds of things when you're beginning to play polo, right? It's just part yeah. of it is that you're going to crash. You're going to yeah. fall on your hip when you're learning to wheelie turn. You're going to smash sure. your elbow up, all these things, right? So I always tell that to newer players, like, you know, every crash makes you a little bit better. That's the silver lining. But you don't have to crash at speed or in dangerous <laughs> situations. You can you can, you can, can try it and mitigate that risk to some extent yes, by so. just picking your spots. <laughs> I, don't know if that, I don't know if that answers your question, Christina. Do you want to, um, do you want, do you want to clarify or did, no, that, did I, I, I get to it? No, I think you covered it. Yeah, great, cool. One of the things I know in our region is we have a lot of, I'd say, intermediate players, players that do well in the regional tournaments in our cool. area. But, um, I mean, if they were to go to that next level in NAs or another international tournament like that, mm. you know, it'd be a big eye-opening experience for them, and as it was for myself, my one time <laughs> playing at NAs. Sure. But um, what tips do you have, if any, for players that want to break into that international scene and kind of get to a level of competitive polo where they're not going to go winless at those <laughs> tournaments? What do you think? It's a big question. Um, I, I think the, the, the main one I think that's obvious for most players who don't play on a full height board court is how the game changes when you, as soon as you play on a full height board court. And I think for a lot of players who, who don't play in North America and have access to roller hockey courts or whatever, you know, whatever facilities have a full height board court, the biggest difference is how the game changes as to how you interact near the edge of the court. Uh, and that's something that a lot of people just, it, it really takes you by surprise. Um, how much, how much you can get stuck on the boards, how much you can get, you know, worked into the boards. Um, and I think that's probably number one. If, if you really want to be competitive uh, on a court 
you have to know how to play on that court. And given that all the competitive courts at the top level are full height boards, you've you've really got to hone your skills on that court. That's number one. Um, I guess number two is you've got to find a team. And this is something that I, I guess I haven't, not, not it's not that I haven't done it so well. I've, it, I'm, yeah, I mean, if I'm critical about my own history in polo at all, it's, 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 I guess, attempting to travel and play as much as I can to, ex, you know, to extend my skills and learn new things and, and garner new, you know, insights. But, but that's come at the cost of building, building a team in many regards. And I think that, I think, I think, I don't think that was a mistake because there were lots of times when building a team probably what I was, it wasn't possible for me at that point. Um, so maybe, you know, if I can give advice based on a you know, possible mistake I've made, it's, it's find people who are as passionate about the sport as you, and maybe not necessarily as good. You know, it's not about necessarily, it's not necessarily about skill. I mean, talent is great. If you can see someone, you know, has promise, but, but at the end of the day, it's about passion. If, if you've, if someone is thinking about bike polo, you know, every day of the week, they're going to get better and they're going to, they're going to develop the game and, and be a better team player because they're thinking about the game. So I guess number one is, yeah, learn to play on a court that's competitive. Uh, and number two is, build a team. And then I guess, you know, good things come in threes, I suppose. So let's go with number three. I guess number three is, it's just, you know, don't be afraid to take risks. Um, and that, and, and what I mean by that is that's the thing that I guess having, cause it's all about yielding competitive wins, right? I mean, you need to have, you need to have, you need to be, you need to have feedback from the world that what you're doing is the right thing, right? And it can't always be wins at tournaments. Sometimes, you know, it's, you can win on many stages. And I think looking at, looking at winning by polo uh, just in the final game is, is probably a little, little myopic and it won't lead to, you can't fuel the fire with, with tournament wins. You know, we're not all Chris Hammersley. So I would say that the way that I fueled the fire in my, and this is maybe a personal thing for people who have the same disposition as I do is, you know, find a way to put your spin on it, find something that's personal to you, um, that you can inject into the game so that, so that it means something more than just winning so that, you know, you, you have personal victories that are over and above competitive victories. Um, and they can be, you know, for me, that's been equipment and honing, uh, the nature of the game at a physical level, perhaps. Um, so, but I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's something different, you know, maybe it's, intricate intricate play i don't know just just make it personal for you and find something to find something to to benchmark your success that isn't always standing on the podium because that won't always be there sometimes it's just about beating gavin <laughs> i think i think you did that in a really neat way when you created the uh the famous figure eight uh drill challenge that went i would say kind of polo <laughs> viral with giving people you know like you know a small scale thing that they could work on and improve and 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 could motivate them and including motivating people to do solo polo so i'm curious can you tell us a bit about yeah. how you came up with that idea and and what you thought when it went uh kind of around the world and, and took the the polo community by storm Sure thing. Do you yeah, mind well, giving us a, just a brief like explanation of yeah. what the challenge was first? Yes, for people that might yeah. have been around then. Yeah, so it's basically like a start line, and then six, you know, witches hats, cones, sport markers, depending on your um your inclination, uh, and then they're spaced two meters apart. So, so six cones spaced two meters apart, and you, depending on whether you're right, right or left-handed, you start on the side. If you're right-handed, you sat on the right. If you're left-handed, you sat on the left. So you generate the same amount of turns towards mallet and ball side. 
um, and you do yeah two laps up and back up and back and I mean yeah I, how can I put it uh, the reason initially the reason I we were developing drills like that is because we have something in Australia called Polar Camp um, and it's a it's a very it's 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 a very community based you know effort to bring people into the sport but also to increase their skill level so we would do we would do specific um, you know workshops in that camp and and one of the workshops that we were doing was ball handling and and I'd often thought you know um, they, they, I quantify I like quantifying things and I you know I like I like benchmarking my progress and and one of the things I was doing at that point was yeah I was just trying to work out whether I was improving you know and um, and that's difficult it's, it's quite difficult to do that and solo polo as much as you can do it a whole bunch you know I don't know whether I'm improving and it's it's nice to if you had going to do deliberate practice, it's nice to have a way to way to detect that. So, I guess I set that up, and I was I was doing it a little bit, um, and then I shared it with a friend of mine. Uh, as in, I took it, you know, I just took it to the park and was doing it with another mate of mine, and realized that that in practicing to do it myself, just for a couple of weeks, I'd gotten like significantly better than than one of my mates who was who's you know still an amazing player, you know, and I was you know, I was like, wow, it's just, just a small amount of practice has really got me better at this, this specific skill. Now, and that's not to say it's a generalizable skill that'll make you better at bipolar, but, but this is a lesson to learn that, you know, if you deliberately practice anything, you're going to get a lot better at it. And, um, and that led me to just thinking, Hey, would it be nice if, if everyone had access to it, it was, it was measurable. And, and, and I also, at that point I was playing around with, you know, some, you know, some innovations, I you know, obviously have this strange device on my bike called, you know, people call it kneecaps, but, um, and I'm still of the opinion that, you know, it, it, it gives me a nifty advantage in terms of dribbling over my front wheel. Um, and, and yeah, I think in that drill, uh, in, you know, I think the speed that you can do that drill is, is yeah, severely, I think I have a distinct advantage. And so it's, <laughs> it was, it was fun to see how fast other people could do it. And, you know, I think, um, it's, it's, it was nice to see that, other people jumped on board and, and, and got into it. It was really cool. Yeah. Okay. Two so, questions. First, what is knee cups? Yeah. Cause I've heard of this thing, but <laughs> yeah, I wanted to explain it. Okay. Yeah, cool. And two, did anyone break the 20 second barrier? Um, to my knowledge, no one, no one has, except for myself has broken the 20 second barrier to my knowledge. Oh, humble brag there, but yeah. I'm going to break it. I'm going to try. <laughs> yeah, I'll try. Yeah. And I, I mean, I was going to, for a little while there, I was going to put up a leaderboard and maybe put a prize out and I'd still be keen to put, a goofy prize out um, for, for someone to do it because it, it I'm t- it it really is difficult like it's 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 not easy. You heard it here first. Goofy prizes for sub twenty second. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I could I could easily rustle up something that would make someone smile. Um, so yeah, if you post a twenty second time, I'll I'll find a prize for you that you'll enjoy. What about knee cups? Tell oh, me about yeah. this. <laughs> How can we forget them? Um, yeah. So I guess early on in bike polo, especially playing with Koyo and playing with all those Seattle players, I realized that. You know, being able to command the ball over your front wheel was was a, you know a definite you know, a skill, <laughs> and it was an advantage. And and at some point, uh, at some point during my progress, I realized that I guess it was when I was riding uh, the the V one small Lightfoot. Um, I was riding a really low cockpit. Um, I think it would have been the bike that I took to uh, would have been the bike I took to the. Great Lakes Winter Classic in 2015. I was running a really low cockpit and yeah, trying to just reach over the front, running a 107 mallet, just, you know, really trying to basically just learn, be the best deking player over the front wheel. And at some point I realized that, 
I was only limited by my upper body strength, kind of holding my weight on the bars. And at some point I was, you know, I wanted to reach further. So I had the stupid, crazy idea to, um, and this, yeah, I, I bought some tri bar knee, I dry, bought some tri bar armrests and strapped them to my down tube, which luckily on the V1 light foot, the down tube is 31.8 millimeters. So that, so the, um, the clamp on a set of tri bar kneecaps or tri bar armrests, uh, fit the down tube. So I basically strapped a, a pair of armrests to the down tube, which was insane. And it led to a whole bunch of stacks over the front wheel, but, and it wasn't really proof of concept. It was proof that it was a stupid idea at that point. And I kind of, I put the, I put the idea to rest, not because I thought it was unachievable or I didn't think it was a good avenue, but I, I moved very quickly from that V1 to developing my own frame. And so I kind of just, it, it became less important um, as an idea. Uh, and then after going through the whole process of making my own frame and then, you know, that, and then at the end, I kind of, that idea came back into my head and, and since it's morphed into, um, it's now on the top tube and it's, uh, it's basically made out of a, a foam roller and it's covered in hockey tape and it's been, you know, custom, custom shaped, uh, to this, fit my, to fit my knees. This is the thing that kind of looks like uh, a gas tank. looks like, like the, a gas tank. Yeah. It looks like a gas tank. That's where I put the battery. It's where I put the battery. It's my <laughs> mechanical doping system. So it allows you to the goalie pad. lean yeah, the forward goalie pad. and rest your knees against it so yeah. that you don't have to put as much weight on your one arm as you lean forward over your bike. So yeah, it just enables me to have a more forward leaning body position. So when I'm on my bike, I can actually lean forward and touch the front wheel with my hand. Like I can actually put my hand on the very, you know, perpendicular surface on the front wheel. So I can reach a really oh, wow. a long way forward. Yeah. And it's an extra point of contact is more, gives you an more extra point of contact. Yeah, exactly. That, that but space, it, right? And it also enables me to um, pivot left um, whilst I can pivot left whilst the ball is on my left hand side. So whilst mm. I'm crossed up, I can, I can pivot and turn at the same time because the bike is being controlled by my knees. Which is, I yeah. saw a video of you doing that. You had a square set up and you were pivoting one way and then you come by and you flick the ball over and f- go the other way. And I was thinking, yeah. whoa, he's crossing over well. He's doing a reverse pivot. Yeah. That's really technical. And I was like, how is he doing that? I <laughs> and I just don't think, it, I mean, I mean, I'm to be proven wrong, but I really don't think that would be possible without, without my kneecaps. Um, Where can I get some? I mean, I've tried all of this stuff. I don't have the kneecaps. I just bruise my knee every time yeah. I go. Yeah, you bruise your knee. Yeah. Just, and yeah. that's what you learn. You, you get those bruises and you're like, there's something going on here that I'm missing. And, and essentially, yeah, I just ended up just making one. I was, you know, sitting at home and and rather than the tri-bar kneecaps were too much. They were too low. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, but yeah, I did get sidetracked, I sidetracked from that idea in trying to develop my own frame, which, which was somewhat similar in its... I guess I had a light foot V1 and I, maybe we, you know, maybe we can transition into that if you guys are interested. Yeah. Well, well, that is the next question. We'll get it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I guess uh, one of the big reasons we wanted to have you on today uh, was to talk about Lightfoot. Um, sure thing. So can you give us your background? <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, light, Lightfoot yeah. was originally, Lightfoot was, was originally started by two Sydney, Sydney folk. Um, yeah. Steve and Brooke, Steve Shimon and Brooke Tate Styles. Uh, in 20, I believe, uh, late 2013. I mean, I imagine because of the production cycle, it was probably dreamt up way before they went to market, knowing what I know now about production. Um, but yeah, we saw them launched at the 2014 Australasians around that period. Um, and so so it was launched by those guys. Those guys did V1 and then they did V2. Uh, and those frames were obviously super popular at their price point. Um, you know, it was a really... Uh, I think to, to my knowledge, it was a variation on the 
scrambler. I, I can't even remember, you know, that, that I've got so much information. An eighth inch scrambler. Yeah, eighth inch. It was yeah, eighth yeah. inch. Yeah, eighth inch scrambler. So, and I believe that was, um, I think Ollie was involved as well. So I, I won't, you know, discount his involvement. I think from knowledge he had, he had some input. So it wasn't just Brooke and, um, wasn't just Brooke and Steve from, from my memory, but, uh, but so Lightfoot's history up until, um, I guess it would be 2018, 2017, 2018 was, was those guys. And then I kind of came along and started to think about making frames or at least think about making, I actually didn't have any idea that I wanted to make a frame for anyone else. I, I was scratching my own itch as many people do who end up making okay. things. Um, I had a, I got back from Montpellier worlds and I was writing this big chunky parquet 58 centimeter thing or whatever it was. It was way too big. And I kind of wanted to move forward and, and, and that led me to buying, I think I first bought a medium, medium V1. And then I got rid of that. I bought a small and I just ended up thinking kind of, you know, well, what do I want this to look like? And uh, so I bought a small and then I bought a max power fork um, because I had, I guess the, one of the things I had an intuition about was that I wanted to have a shorter wheelbase. That's the first thing you think about, you know, turning radius wheelbase, let's do that. And the max power fork was really nicely made. Um, and it had a 25 millimeter offset. So it was slightly shorter. So it, it, it was one way without making my own frame that I could make my wheelbase a little shorter. Um, and I really liked that thing. Um, I really liked it. And in fact, that geometry ended up in the V3. It's, it's very similar offset in that fork. So I had the V1 light foot with the max power fork and I had this crazy down angled stem. And I was just trying to, you know, I was trying to just get over the front wheel and and I remember playing with Sean at uh, Sean Marsh at the Great Lakes Winter Classic, and and you know he's a man of few words, but he said, you know, if I can give you some feedback, he's like, you know, you could if you lift your cockpit a little bit, you'll um, and I'm not going to do his accent because I'm just going to sound horrible. He's like, if you just lift your cockpit a bit, you'll have better vision on the court. He's like, you're way too low, and and I thought that was pretty good advice uh, at the time, but I just I was so focused on it was very difficult because when I would lift up, I would not only would I lose reach over the front wheel, but my, my front wheel would, would just lighten up and I'd start to shudder when I turned. So I was just like, no, that can't, I just don't know what I can do here. So, um, so my first inclination was, well, I'm getting a help. I'm getting heaps of toe overlap on this bike because as a result of bringing the fork in, I was getting toe overlap. So I was like, damn, it'd be really nice to not get toe overlap and also be able to shift my cleats back. Um, because I was riding with my cleats all up in my toes and I was getting random ejections uh, from the cleats and there was nothing I could do about it. I couldn't tighten them anymore. I was, so I was just like, what could I do here? And I was just, I guess I found, I found bike CAD, which is a amazing program. Um, the free version's fantastic. That guy needs more money. Yeah, he, yeah, he's amazing. Um, gentleman who makes that program. So I just sat down one night with the free version of bike CAD, drew up my existing frame and fork and then thought, mm, you know, what could I change? So I, I simply just, you know, increase the, what they call front center distance, which is the distance between the bottom bracket and the, the front axle, which had the effect. Well, I just wanted more room for my toes. <laughs> I just, I was like, I just hate, you know, having that front wheel catch my toe and, and click me out of my pedal or get stuck or so. Um, so I was like, right, let's, let's fix that. So I did that. And, and at this point I just had no, I had no real idea that I was ever going to get this thing made. It was just, you know, I, I like to tinker and I like to think and the best way to tinker and think is to do it in, you know, with a drawing. So I made a drawing and, and lo and behold, my then teammate, Ned was traveling to Brisbane for a, for a tournament, almost the next weekend that I designed this thing. 
Um, and he had the good fortune of, I guess, bumping into Max Power from Max Power Cycles and mentioned it to Max. And Max, out of the goodness of his heart, um, turned it into a real drawing, a real CAD drawing from one you know, cocktail napkin drawing on BiCAD and turned it into a, a real drawing and and sent it to one of his uh, contacts in Italy and had had the frame made um, at a, a, you know, at a very low cost, you know, I, I can't remember. It was, it was super cheap. He was basically doing me a favor and I just, I can't thank him enough um, because I just don't know if I ever would have got that frame made if he hadn't really helped me out. Um, so got that frame made and I, it got to my house and put it together and man, it was weird. Um, it was strange <laughs> because, uh, you know, it, it had the effect that I wanted, you know, I had, a, had all this toe room, but man, it was hard to pivot. The front wheel was so heavy. Um, mm. and it was almost like a problem. I was like, I was just, and I'm a, you know, pretty strong guy, like, you know, like my upper body's okay. So I was like, this is just unrideable. So I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll just lift my cockpit. So started lifting my cockpit, um, you know, quite a bit, a little bit, 10 mil, 15 mil spaces, you know, upturned stem. And then got to a point where I was like, oh, this is cool. You know, like I've got, I've lifted myself up a little bit. Um, and I'm like, well, what's going on here? And essentially what was going on is, when you increase the front center distance, the distance between the bottom bracket and the front axle, um, you're essentially just increasing the amount of leverage that you're, you're, you're increasing the amount of weight that your body places on the front wheel. Because if you think of it like a lever arm, mm-hmm. so for each unit of weight I'm placing on the bars, more of it's being translated, or let's say my center of gravity is just you know, being distributed more into the front wheel, uh, which was great because I realized so much of what I was loving about having such a low cockpit on my prior bike was just how much front wheel weight I was getting. And that front wheel weight is just means you can turn super fast because you don't get those shutter outs. And it was one of my criticisms of, of what, you know, the Reddit discussion about the, the bike geometry is, you know, jack knifing isn't the only problem. I mean, one of the major problems when you start to ride fast is shutter out. You know, you get this yeah, point where you start worst. to shutter out. Yeah. And so especially one handed when you're trying to dribble and not focused on the bike. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and that's something I realized when playing with, you know, when Emmett visited, one of the things that was holding him back, chasing me around the court was that one handed, he would put a lot of, when he would go high side or turn left with his, you know, he would often shutter out and that just never happens to me. And that's a function of that front wheel weight, which is derived from having a little bit more front center distance. So I'm like, Oh, this is cool. You know, I can, this seems like a, this seems like I'm really enjoying the bike, um, loving it. And, but you know, I'm, I'm kind of weird. I like weird things. So I didn't really think anything of it. Uh, and then actually funnily enough, I guess the turning point for me was when my teammate, my erstwhile teammate, Andrew Hayward, who I played on the fist with in, um, in 2014, we won, when we won Australasians, he's a, he's one of those, one of those people in your life who will give you accurate feedback. If he likes something, he'll tell you. And if he doesn't like something, he'll tell you as well. Um, and he wrote it once and he said, he's, I think he just gave me a nod and said, yeah, it's good. And, and when you get that kind of feedback from someone who, who, you know, who, who gives accurate feedback. I was like, oh, and, and he's also well known for using gear till its end and not really believing that gear can change things, just thinking you should be a better player and riding a shitbox bike and still being an absolute slayer. Um, you know, I remember when Sean turned up at Australasians and saw Andrew's bike, Sean said, you know, does Andrew play a lot? And uh, so, yeah, so Andrew was pivotal in, in kind of giving me that reassurance that actually it wasn't just me. There was something going on about the slight change in geometry. Um and, and little tweaks could make big differences in the way that it plays. Um, so that was, you know, I started to think, well, you know, there were, he wanted one, or at least I knew, you know, he would ride one if I made one. So 
I guess I started making, I started the idea of making some more um, and that just led me to making more aluminium. I just wanted to make some more high-end stuff. I didn't think about doing a, doing a run of steel bikes at all at that point. Mm. So I, yeah, just started to design the, the alloy version and, and designed a small one because my partner at that time was a little smaller than me and she was actually enjoying my bike. She had a max power 26 inch and she was riding my 700. And just being like, this is way more, I like this bike more than I like my bike. And I'm like, well, that makes no sense. It's too big for you. So we'll, we'll design one that's, that fits you. So I designed one to fit her. And essentially the small that you see in the, in the Lightfoot V3 is a, is, is just a, a bike that I designed for her. And the medium is the one I designed for me. And the large is actually the one that I designed for my, the, for Ben, who got me into bike polo. So that's the three sizes. We could call it the Alice, <laughs> the Dave and the Ben, if, if you like, but, um, yeah, so I don't know. It's I could I could keep talking for John. You know, if you ever guys have any questions, I can geo talk all day. Yeah, I have a question about the geometry, and I mean, I'm not a geo wizard by any stretch mm-hmm. of the imagination, but I'm just thinking. You know, you're talking about putting more weight on that front wheel a lot, right? And yeah, I think a lot of the polo bikes that we're seeing are going a lot more toward that, like weight over the front, like lower front mm-hmm. bars. Mm-hmm. Everything's very much leaned over, yeah. more head over the front wheel, but. Isn't there a trade-off there with your ability to wheelie turn as quickly and easily? And what's your opinion on that? And does that matter when we're playing? Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, it's like there's always sacrifices to gains. And and that was something that I instantly realized is the bike that I'd made, um, it wasn't an every person bike. It was really hard work to ride. You know, and I think if people are honest about the V3, um, if they're honest about it, they'll probably say, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to ride. Like it doesn't flip up onto the rear wheel very easily. Mm. Um, now for someone like me, I kind of like that because I don't tend to generate wheelie turns without nose pivoting first. And that's yeah. just, yeah. that's just what you have to do with a bike. That's, that's heavy on the front wheel. And, um, and so that's how I kind of worked around that. But subsequently I realized that that is a limitation, especially in terms of playing long games and long days and, you know, you want to, you want to balance that out. So I think that's what led me to, I guess, I guess to move towards on my current bike, I've, I've, I, I run a, like an adapter dropout that I made, which enables me to run a 650 rear wheel, but maintain the same bottom bracket height as my, as what is your oh, sweet. with the 700. So, and, and I guess what that does is twofold in going to a smaller rear wheel, it enables me to tuck, to shorten the wheelbase and to lower the axle height. And so, and so what that does is it, by shortening the wheelbase, your center of mass, you know, goes more towards the rear axle, um, which means that, you know, you've just got, you know, the, the, the lever gets shorter, you've got, you know, sh- shorter distance to travel, but in, um, that's probably a really poor explanation in physics. I'm just trying to explain how it works in my <laughs> you know, uh, caveman mind. Um, but when you lower the axle as well, I mean, if you think of exaggerating and then lowering the axle, you know, to a 20 inch wheel or a you know, then essentially the axle is the, is the thing you rotate over. And by lowering it, it does, does lighten up the, the front of the bike. It makes, makes pivoting significantly easier. Um, and also, it also increases rear wheel traction because one of the things, one of the limiting factors I was having, which I don't think, I think if you get really extremely into the front wheel thing, you may have this, especially on the light foots, is that you may generate a front wheel pivot and then you'll go to generate a rear wheel and you'll get a wheel, wheel skid. So you'll yes. essentially do a burnout. Yeah. yeah. So I was that having this a like lot. Three times. Which it's looks pretty cool. And you, you just die in the water. Like there's no, there's <laughs> no, no recovering done. from that because you end up, you end up in a position at six and 12 with your pedals and there's no, that's the least powerful position yeah. you can be in. And that, that was a huge, that was once I'd gotten to that point where I'm like, oh, I love the front wheel weight. 
and I'm getting better and I'm starting to move faster. I was getting this happening like three, four or five times, you know, a, a session where I'm deep. I've pivoted deep. I've got my head over the bars. I'm everything's happening. All of a sudden I just like rear wheel skid trying to transfer weight. And I'm like, what can I do? Um, and that led me to, yeah, to make an adapter, um, to use a 650B rear wheel. Um, hmm. and I really, I think, yeah, my bike now is, yeah, I'm really, yeah, it, it fixed that problem. I never get rear wheel with spin outs ever so, now. So is that, is that the technology now for people building uh, V3s go 650 in the rear? Well, look, to, yeah, to do that, to do that, you'd need, the <laughs> you'd need the adapter and they're a bit rare at the moment. Um, I, I did make a couple in there. I was, I was hesitant. How was I, how can I put this? I was hesitant. Cause I, you just don't know. I didn't do any like, you know, analysis on them. I didn't know if they'd break. I didn't know what would happen. I didn't know if they'd flex. I've been using mine for a bunch, you know, for a bunch now and it seems fine. Um, but the other thing is, um, it's very, you know, I, I designed it knowing my front sprocket size, my chain length and my rear sprocket size. So I, I designed it so that it, I could get chain tension in a very narrow band because you have to choose where to put the new dropout. And so I think the risk in making a product that is is a retrofit of sorts is you might make it to work for one bike and then you sell it as a product and it just doesn't work for anyone else. So yeah, if you run like a 34 front ring and a 21 rear ring and you you slam it in and you've got a medium and yeah, it'll work, but I don't know if it'll work on a small, I don't know if it'll work on a large and I worry about making products that don't work because the last thing I want is emails of people saying it doesn't work, bro. Cause I feel really like, you know, it's incumbent upon you to sell a product that works. And I just Light, Lightfoot did a recall at one point, didn't they? With, yeah. was it V1? That, no, the, that was one of the first things I remember hearing about Lightfoot as a, as a company that really impressed oh, me. Oh, great. Yeah. Oh, no. Okay. Impressive. Yeah. Excellent. No, no well, well, just the fact that, you know, it, it's a polo bike that, you know, we put crazy, I feel like with anything in bike polo, like even the best design things, like yeah. we're crazy people doing crazy things that like for bikes sure. aren't really designed for, even yeah. if you're trying to make it heavy. Like, yeah. so I, I was impressed that Lightfoot, uh, well, I guess you probably, you can explain what happened. In more Look, I, know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't involved with the company at an organizational level at that point. So I really only know, I mean, I probably know a little bit more than you, but I really only know the, the minor details, which was that the second, the second run, Lightfoot V2, um, had some production problems with the tubing, as far as I understand, the head tube. Um, and that's really all I, all I know about it. Uh, I mean, it definitely played into... Um, so when I tried to acquire the brand, just because I felt like rather than start my own brand, it would be nicer to take up the torch. And it was in the back of my mind that they'd had a number of failures. and But they'd seen the public relations around that. I mean, as you said, it's it's great feedback. Um, was good, you know, and and... I did, I did obviously walk into that thinking, you know, was it a good idea to, to take on a brand that had had a failure in their last, you know, their last run. Um, but it, it played into my, you know, very, um, I was very careful about how I manufactured V3 and mm -hmm. touch wood. And I'd love to hear from anyone, um, who can speak to this, but not, I haven't had a failure. I made a hundred frames and, and to this point we're two years in almost, and not, I, I haven't had one failure, which, which is, uh, which is. It was a really, it was really, I was stoked. That was kind of my mission to make a bike that I couldn't mm -hmm. break. Um, yeah, yeah. Just, just to clarify the, my understanding was basically there was just a reliability issue. Yeah, there was the, yeah. the V2. And then there was like a recall and a little plate got added to strengthen things or something. I, I actually or don't I know. Don't, I, don't I think know they just replaced them. I think they just replaced okay. them. Yeah. I don't think a gusset would have helped. I think it was a tube. It was a tube issue. I think the head tube was just incorrectly specified. So as I know. But I just remember being impressed that that was the, you know, yeah. if, there, if there's an so issue, there's, you know, they, they owned it and 
there was, you know, cool. like that doing something, you know, replacing things is just such a difficult thing in the cycling industry. It's expensive and it's, we just want to avoid it. Um, and it's, yeah, I've been really lucky, especially after doing the promo with the bushfires and, you know, I really didn't want to replace frames cause it would just come out and it would have come out of something that isn't even profit. So I was stoked that obviously not, none of them turned around and failed. Yeah, I'm wondering, you've, you've spoken a bit about uh, kind of the process and, and design. I'm curious, you know, the Lightfoot frame is really, it's huge. It's We see them at every every tournament, you know, around the world. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about what's really led to that success. I think initially there was a hole in the market when, I think when Brooke and Steve and, and Ollie um, first came out, I think they're main aim was to provide something because we're a long way from everywhere else in the world. I mean, I don't think people yep. realize until they come to Australia, we're a long way away from everyone else. So getting polo equipment was really difficult. You know, Swallows, which was an Australian brand um, started up because we just couldn't get stuff, you know, it's difficult and it's expensive. So um, much, much to the same end as myself, it was scratching, scratching their own itch. It was providing for their own community. Uh, and that led to them providing a product that other people throughout the world uh, found at that price point which at the time was less than 400 Australian dollars, you know, around 250 US, which was really cheap. And the V1s were incredibly long lasting. I mean, um, I mean, yeah, some of those are still kicking around even. So, yeah, so I think it would be remiss of me not to say that price point played into it initially, um, you know, and polar geometry at that point, you know, I think, I think anything around that eighth inch scrambler geometry that was, that was short track steep with a, you know, with a reasonably short offset was, was better than what was available um and and so i think that definitely started that's definitely what started all of these i guess life for is that you know catering to a market but um i can't i can't really speak about i mean look v3 didn't i mean look everyone who v3 didn't sell i mean I, I think until i sold 50 or so in the first kind of eight months i think and most of those people were people who had personal contact with me um because if i'm honest yeah i really it was really a, it's, it's, it's a bike for people who want to play like I want to play, you know, it's not. Um, and so I, don't, I didn't really mince words and I'm not, I'm not really the kind of person to tell, you know, to, to not to say otherwise it's, it's, it's a bike that does lend itself to playing over the front wheel. It's very, it's heavy on the front wheel. It's, it's not a bike for people who aren't, you know, you know, at least a little bit fit. Um, and if you set it up strangely, it can really, it can be hard to ride. Um, so I, I kind of knew that going in um, and I get to, guess I just expected, I guess I just wanted to try it out. It was like a fun thing to do. And, and, and I had faith that I'd be able to sell them, you know, somehow, you know, they're still, I should, maybe I should have put a rear brake mount on them. Maybe that would have been, that's, that's what they did with the V1 and the V2. Maybe that would have been good, but I, my aesthetic was now nah, no rear brake. Like, it's I mean, poly, I like the aesthetic. It's a poly bike. So it's clean. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a poly bike. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah. And then I guess, I guess so if you're referring to why Lightfoot in general has been, uh, you know, is visible across the world when you go to a tournament, I think it has been largely price point, um, especially, you know, when, when I put the V3s up for, you know, on discount. It was wild. Yeah. And I really <laughs> Everyone was trying to buy them, right? How can we yeah. get these right now to yeah. Canada? And like, if I'm, if I'm honest, um, or if, if I'm candid, let's say, uh, I just had bikes rusting in my shed. You know, I was like, I mean, not rusting, I mean, it's being a little bit hyperbolic, but, um, you know, they were just sitting there being unused. And I thought, um, well, what can I do here? Like it's, you know, the bushfires were pretty tragic in our area and, uh, well in Australia, not my area, I live in Melbourne, obviously, but, but I thought, you know, what can I do? How can I, 
how can I get, you know, get some of this value that I have and translate it into something worthwhile. And it, it really, I mean, it worked so well. I, I think I sold 45 frames in two weeks. Um, and the reception from the community and it really felt like, I don't know, it was just a real fuzzy feeling for me to be able to do that. And also to have so many people who I'd really wanted to ride the frame who'd never done so like notable people who I'm going to shout out who bought one, who really like, um, there were three or four that went to Geneva, um, and, you know, Quentin from milk ended up riding one and that's, you know, um, that was cool for me. Um, but Tina from Salt Lake, who I'd been trying to basically give a frame, for you know but she wouldn't get off that bloody t1 um and so yeah she bought one and i was just super stoked because you know when i had there when you when you design something i think you ultimately have people in mind and she was one of the people i had in mind who i thought would really would really love it especially when i got to play with her i think she's hard as nails and plays this very similar game and aesthetic to up to me so she's incredible she's incredible incredible she's a force for nature and i think pound for pound i think I don't know, maybe Carol from Seattle, pound for pound is, is just as strong, but I think pound for pound, she's one of the strongest players on earth. Um, and, and yeah, so some of those people came out of the woodwork. And so it was really rewarding for me to be able to, and, you know, to get rid of, you know, not get rid of them. That sounds a little, sounds a little negative, but to, to see them being used and to see them get into the hands of people who otherwise wouldn't have, have been able to was, was really good. And, and so I'm stoked that they exist and yeah. I have a question for you. So you mentioned, you know, they can be pretty difficult to ride if not set up properly. Yeah. Um, What would you say is like something that you wouldn't want someone to do if they want it to ride well? I'm just curious, what are those improper setups you're referring to? Yeah. I mean, I would ride, I would ride ride it with a layback post uh, and I would, I would, you know, it was designed to have a Thompson, a Thompson layback, which I think 17 millimeters layback. Uh, And then I would probably, if you have, if you ride an existing bike with a, with a bar height of, of X, I would just lift your bars slightly. I would, I would never go lower on the bars than your existing setup. And if you're moving from a you know 26, that's very rear wheel oriented, you know, maybe ease up and, and move into it slowly. Um, I've actually gone to, you know, I've lifted my bars significantly um, over the last couple of years. And so, yeah, I would say that if anyone is, is finding that they feel like the, the front wheel is a little too heavy is to um, yeah, lift the bars, move your seat back. Uh, yeah. Those sorts of things. That's pretty simple. Okay. Yeah. Nothing too so, technical. Yeah. So we, uh, we've been laying the groundwork for more technical discussion that hasn't happened yet. So yeah. Spoilers for upcoming episodes. We've been talking about doing technical stuff, yeah, sorry. Uh, but one of the things that keeps coming re- a reoccurring theme that I keep finding from those discussions with, uh, other sort of po- more technically oriented polo players. Um, a lot of people seem to be, driving towards uh 650b or um the the 27 you know same Mm -hmm. size but like that that wheel size as i've been talking to people say they're saying you know oh 26 700 you know we joke Mm -hmm. about it on the podcast all the time but Mm -hmm. in talking to people about sort of future innovation or the direction that people see the the polo polo bike design going in the future a lot of people i keep hearing 650b 27 in like 27 mm. five like do, how do you do you do you think that is that should we expect that for a v4 like what how do you how do you mullet, how do you mullet. feel about that yeah well like, obviously i ride a mullet bike um yeah. so i ride yeah 27 <laughs> rears, 26 20 yeah 650 rear 700 front i think i think it's quite simply it's just a it's just a midpoint for wheel sizes i think for a long mm. time that you know the gap between 26 and 700 has just been too large and so there are some people who ride 26 who who maybe are a little too small in their stature um, to benefit 
wholly from a wheel increase if if the only option is 700 so it's it's just a midpoint mm-hmm. and and for someone like me who can who probably can fit a 700 wheel in terms of my body size and and strength uh you know for me there's like a middle ground there where i could i could use the 650 front wheel but what would i what would i be gaining out of that and in fact i have some i have some opinions on why axle height is something you want to keep rather than lose so not just not not only would i want you know to retain that defense of having a larger front wheel um but i think there's something there's something a little magical about the distance between the bottom bracket and the axles we call bb drop i think bb drop is something that we want to retain as much as possible well as a 700 fanboy tell me about this axle height i need i need this for the next time gavin starts talking about 26 inches yeah <laughs> so i've written i've written a bunch of 26s you know I, I made it my mission to to really see what was going on there because for someone who loves riding like a you know mad person um uh, you know why not ride a bike as short as possible why not ride a bike as light as possible and obviously with regard to rotational inertia or you know why not ride smaller wheels because having to accelerate a you know le- you know a, a wheel that's smaller is is much easier so getting a st- getting from a standing start uh, 26 seems obvious to me um as an advantage and i think the people who ride 26 get that advantage but the question is what are the disadvantages of 26 and and one of the distinct disadvantages especially for smaller players, is just stature on the court and size and how much space they take up. So take Tina, for instance. She's a perfect example of a smaller player who, who takes up a lot of space um, as a result of riding a slightly larger bike. Getting around her is more difficult because she just occupies more space on the court. And, and that's a definite boon for those players who can't, you know, their stature isn't in their, in their height or their weight. And mm-hmm. so, and so that advantage of having a slightly longer wheelbase, um, or not—I mean, not even a slightly longer wheelbase—you bring the wheels as close as you know. The, the small, small seven hundred Lightfoot V three is about as about as tight as you can get. You get a little tighter if you had small feet, but but I left a little bit of room in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. So I think taking up space is one thing that maybe twenty-six inch players lose. But the other thing that people, I guess, that I I don't hear people talking about is is that one of the things that you lose is you lose BB drop. Um, and one of the, I guess one of the hard, hard limits in polo is, is lean angle. Um, so lean angle and pedal strike, I mean, obviously don't pedal through corners, but you know, if, if you, know, you want, you, there's some balance with, or some hard limit, you can't, you can't drop your BB right to the ground. So, you know, BB height um, as a function of you know, lean angle is kind of fixed. You know, you, you want your BB at a certain height within a, you know, within a certain margin. Um, and obviously with axle height, a 26 inch, uh, bike will have axle height. You know, I think, I think the statistic is, I think it's around 28 to 30 mils, uh, lower on a, on a, on a 26 inch wheel. Um, I know more about 650, that's 20 mils basically, mm-hmm. cause that's what I, that's what I've been playing with. Um, and so what that does is it, when you have a lower axle height and you've got BB drop, uh, essentially the BB drop, you know, on a 26 inch bike, you might only have 20 millimeters of BB drop. Now this, this might seem a little strange, but I, I get the feeling that that contributes to stability and turning at speed and, and stability in pivoting. And cause, cause if you think about BB drop, like a lever, right, the distance yeah. between your BB and your wheels when you're carving through, and this is, it's not a, it's not a linear system by any stretch of the imagination, as you can see from the graphs on Reddit by that te- <laughs> technical guy. So it's totally nonlinear, but, but my feeling when I used to ride 26 inch bikes was I could feel that my 
the, my BB was was some was but the relationship to my with my BB to the axles had some factor with my stability and there was something about the stability I was getting out of the 26 inch bikes when I was carving and pivoting it was easier for me to high side which is you know lose it over over my center of gravity um so starting inside my center of gravity on a turn and then end up you know popping over my center of gravity and then that kind of does all sorts of weird things um so that was easier it was easier to muck up in those ways when I was riding a bike with smaller wheels and I felt like that was a function at least partially if not yeah, definitely not entirely of, of this BB drop thing. So I think in, in, in retaining a 700 front wheel for myself, part of that has been about defense and obviously taking up as much goal as possible because I'm a pretty atrocious goalie. Um, but part of that has been in my belief that BB drop, um, especially with regard to the steering wheel, the front wheel, um, I want to try and maximize that as much as possible or at least not, not lose that because I think I'm losing... Yeah, stability at speed, high, and it's leading up to high sides and all, all sorts of weird uh, things that I'd rather avoid. And at my size, I can take the downsides of a 700 wheel um, and get the upsides. So, hmm. but yeah, I mean, I think right. the future, the future, so to speak, to the the future is you know a wheel size combination that is more tailor made to your size. You know, if I ever did a V4, it would it would probably have a fork and a rear dropout that I could customize to individual desires. So maybe it would be a small, medium and a large, but the large would facilitate two 700 wheels. And, a, you know, you could change the dropout and do a 650 rear, the medium, you could do 700, 650 front and rear. Uh, and then the, the small, you could do, you know, 650 both or 26 inch rear or 26 both. But all of those frames would maintain the right BB height using you know, some, somehow to change the, the axle height. So that would be the idea if I ever did V4, which, yeah, which is, which is some non-zero likelihood at this point. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense to anyone, but that's kind of how I feel about it. Oh, I think, yeah. Sounds perfect. And from now on, you're going to hear me say uh, axle height every yeah. time Gavin starts talking about 20. It's all about that stability, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you've got to try a bunch of things, you know, ideally we'd have a bike in you know, a couple of bikes out there that we could, we could make small adjustments to and then ride on. That would be my dream. And yeah. I've got a, I've actually got a second medium light foot in the garage that I've been hoarding in order to, to set up slightly differently and have that incremental change so that I can unlearn things about it. Cause you know, for my bike personally, I, I think it's almost perfect in terms of what I want it to do. I, maybe I'd move the BB forward. Like we're talking, talking three or four millimeters at this point. So I'm getting real close to what I like. Yeah. Mm, just amazing. So, and, and if anyone ever wants, you know, this is the other thing. I see a lot of people online getting people to make bikes for them. Um, and maybe those frame manufacturers are giving them advice. And if anyone ever wants to reach out and have, you know, get some advice and they, they've got maybe some a linguistic expression of what they want, you know, maybe they say, I, I want it to be more turny. Or I want it to be more jazzy or I, you know, I'd want to do this fandangled thing. You know, I, I, sometimes I can help you translate that using, you know, my understanding of how polo works into maybe some geometry, geometry tweaks. So, Please That's reach out. Cool. I'm, I'm always happy to help with mm -hmm. customs because last thing I want is someone to spend money on a custom and be advised by someone who understands bicycles, let's say, but doesn't understand maybe polo so specifically. So always happy to help people give, you know, bike CAD drawings or give advice, you know, if, if they want. I'd, yeah, anytime, just reach out to me on Facebook, Clefton Twain. Or... Well, I, I definitely think I know a couple of people that are going to reach out to you. <laughs> yeah, sweet. I, I love that stuff. So... I, I live for it. You know, there's <laughs> nothing better than... Nothing better than seeing people up and coming frame builders yeah. around here for sure. I, I think uh, I think quarantine has driven a lot of people into. All right, that's it. I'm making a polo bike. <laughs> Man, you know, it has. We've all had time to think yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It's super cool. It's super, <laughs> and there's so many beautiful bikes out there. I'm super jealous.
Um, I guess, you know, what's next, right? That's the big question on a lot of people's minds. What's next for Lightfoot? I noticed the shop is down right now currently. Yeah. yeah. Um, any innovations coming up or anything coming? And, you know, after that, I'd love to pick your brand on what you think is next for Polda, but we'll start with Lightfoot, okay? Uh, yeah, it's a tough one. Um, at this point, at this point, it has to be fiscally viable for me to do anything in the future. You know, it has to be at least, you know, at least cash neutral, if not cash positive would be, would be great. And I think it's difficult in these times of uncertainty to, I mean, the bike industry is, is very difficult at the moment to make anything because they're just stretched in Taiwan. So, (laughs) so yeah, it's, um, it's not, it's not out of the question that I would do more things, but, but at this point in time, in terms of injecting energy into bike polo, I see myself, you know, working on my scene, uh, you know, refing more. That's something I've always been passionate about, but increasingly passionate about. Um, and and life for of us. it's a difficult. I, I don't. Yeah, it's difficult. Maybe my character lends itself to to refing. I, yeah, but but it's. I mean, every, every club needs a good ref. At least one person to care about it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's hard because you got to you got to you got to make them, and once you make them, you know they might leave, and then. You know, you lose that social capital. It, it's huge. It's such it's such a fine line to walk between caring about the rules and mm. not being a dick about it. Totally. And it's it's mm. tough. Like, yeah, <laughs> I've I've crossed that line, unfortunately, and hopefully learn from the experience. <laughs> yeah, I think that's one thing that's really good about Australia is that um, I think I get a, I think I I think myself and anyone who steps up to ref gets a lot of leeway. Uh, I mean, it's yeah, look. I can't say that's for everyone. There've definitely been negative situations arise in previous tournaments, but especially when people step up to ref who don't have the social capital that I do. So I can't really speak for everyone. It would be, it would be, you know, it would be remiss of me not to say that I certainly have privilege in that regard that people listen to me um, in ways they probably don't listen to newer players. Um, but, but I hope that players like myself and people who have you know, social standing would stand up for those people and call people out and not don't do it in like obviously a belligerent way, but, but just maybe give them support. And if they have a negative experience as a ref say, uh, you know, don't say that's part of the course. Cause I think that's excusing the behavior, the negative behavior on the court, but, but kind of balance. I think it's about balance. It's about saying, Hey, you know, like if, if you want to be a good ref, you kind of have to be a little thick skinned and that maybe is a character. It's a trait that some people have and some people don't. Um, and, and second of all, if you do, you, you can push back on people to improve their behavior, but you, yeah, but, but there has to be an acceptance that at some point you get, you're going to get, you're going to get a mouthful. Um, and that's, that's going to be something you're going to have to, to adjudicate and say, Hey, that's not okay. And, and be very calm about it and calculated and, and, and use the rule set to your advantage and try and stay calm. And, and that's something that I think we underestimate how much social standing helps those of us who have social standing to stay calm in those instances, because, you know, I'm like, yeah, well, you know, I've, I don't have a whole lot to lose here. Like, you know, I'm still going to go home and, you know, have, you know, my life and whatever, but the players who are trying to grow the, their, themselves within the community, I think are right to take those jibes more, you know, to heart because, you know, they're, they're really trying and they're putting in effort and they don't deserve to get those, those mm. they don't deserve to have those negative uh, outcomes. So, Shadow, you know, I think shadow refing and really helping people get through and also making quite, you know, we have pretty serious punitive measures for people who talk back to refs. And I think that's definitely part of part of the future. Um, but before we transition into maybe the future of bike polo, I think for me, 
I, I just want to play some more. I'd love to, you know, I had the dream to play a European season before pandemic happened and I'd still like to do that. I'm getting old. So maybe competitively, um, I don't know. I don't know how many more years of keeping up with, you know, the young kids like Luca and, and, uh, you know, Timmy from Germany, those kids just slay a Leon and they're just, yeah, I don't know if I can keep up. I kept up for a little while. I'm pretty happy about that, but I don't know how long that's going to last. So yeah, a little bit of competitive play, but then yeah, transitioning into a support, you know, transitioning into being a ref and I've done a bunch of organization and refing. So it'd be nice to, um, be nice to transition more into that. Don't know if Lightfoot as a, as a brand, uh, features heavily in that. I guess it would depend how the sport goes because making products for a, for a sport that isn't growing, uh, when the market is somewhat saturated. Um, I don't really like to make, you know, I don't really like to make products that just, you know, replace other products without any innovation, you know? Um, I mean, that was one of the things that to my dismay, I guess, about the mallet situation. Um, I got some really like, I guess, feedback from, um, from Sean at Fixcraft, which was not unfair, but I guess my innovation in the mallet, in the mallet domain was to try and make a mallet that just didn't cost Australians a whole bunch of money because, you know, to import mallets, it was costing us a hundred dollars per mallet. Uh, I mean, to be, to, to be honest, I, I have a light foot mallet now hmm. because the dollar difference between yeah. the U S and Canada makes it easier for me to get Australian yeah. mallets than it yeah. does to get American ones, which is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean, obviously that's nothing that like yeah. fix crowd or, or hecklers out. No. Like that's not a, no. that's not a polo problem. That's a, that's a global economics problem. Yeah. But um, like there are Canadian manufacturers that make heads. Good head is not, you know, I don't want to, I don't know enough about yeah. what they've done that say they're not innovative, but they yeah. definitely didn't reinvent the mallet, mm. but just having a Canadian resource is a big, is a big deal. And I'm sure having an Australian, uh, just, yeah. just having them available locally makes a huge difference. Anything in the South Pacific. I mean, there's a lot of clubs around there that I'm sure are feeding off the Lightfoot equipment, right? You got New Zealand, you probably go up a little bit north there in Japan. I don't know what they have up there, but all kinds of, I'm sure, clubs are better it's a, off it's because a hard Lightfoot one. exists. It's a hard one because I think the players who've stuck around in bike polo are those players who just care so much about their gear. And <laughs> in, in having made a mallet that was of lower cost, I think... You know, I think with people moving to new shaft, uh, like new shaft materials, which are clearly better than 7075, um, you know, 7001, I think is the new, you know, that's the tent pole kind of material that the, that the Pero shafts are made out of. And I think the fixed craft predator shafts were made out of and the Donata, the newer ones. So that, that 7001 stuff is really good. Like, I just don't think we're going to get any better than that for the dollar. So we're pretty much as good as it gets. So, you know, the mallets that I've made are definitely, I mean, I made them, I think we were selling completes at tournaments for 50 Australian with a grip. It's incredible. Um, and so that was my, think, that was, yeah, that was what I tried to do. Yeah. But, I think that's about what I, what I ordered mine for. Mm, and it, yeah. I mean, a full mallet for like 50 bucks is yeah something you, I can, I can get behind. <laughs> yeah. That was the idea. And the, the clear grip was in, in aid of, cause I just expected everyone in Australia to buy the same mallets and how do we tell them all apart? So you can just put a sticker under there or, you know, when we play at polo camp, you just got to mark your mallet. Otherwise it just gets too hectic. So um, I've still got a bunch of clear golf grips if anyone feels energetic and wants them. So yeah, it just uh, message me if you want some clear golf grips. I got thousands. The minimal water quantity was ridiculous. <laughs> mm. I, I definitely, I, I like the golf grip. I've, I've gone back and forth between doing bike grips. I mean, we could do yeah. a whole episode on how you do your grip. The golf episode but... needs to come. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the mallet grip tape, episode. The golf yeah. grip. Yeah. 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 But yeah. I'm, I'm 
I'm veering back towards the golf grip camp now that I installed yeah. the Lightfoot one yeah. and I've been playing with a golf grip again. And I'm like, okay, this might be, this, this might be in my future. So it's, the one that I, <laughs> I chose, is, you up. it's actually a junior golf grip. So it's like really thin compared to a, just the normal ones you buy at a golf store. So it's pretty, it's not too chunky, which I think a lot of the golf grips are a little chunky, especially once you put them on a 19 mil shaft, which the Lightfoot shafts is 17 mil. So it's a little thinner to start with. I really like the the thinner feel i don't like a big bulky do, do you have a technique for putting them on because that was one of the hardest golf grips to get installed i think i've ever done yeah, yeah, yeah so i just use a little bit of isopropyl alcohol um to get like to lube it up and then just yeah pump and close the end off with a nut and, uh, with the bolt and then just use a pump with a, a broken valve in the back one person yep. pumping and then just yeah slide it on slowly but a bit <laughs> of isopropyl alcohol is hugely because then once it goes on don't put too much on because you won't be able to play with it right away but a tiny bit just to get it lubed up and then it'll evaporate over time so because I'm used to just being able to kind of work it on. Yeah. And I was trying to do that with it. And I'm like, oh, no, I have to. I ended up going to the isopropanol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A just a little bit, though. Like, I mean, I can yeah. do it without it just with a bit of, you know, like spit. But, you know, it's, it's the isopropanol is way easier. Hmm. Let's get to these big polo questions, though. This is what I'm dying <laughs> here. You said you had takes the when philosophy. you got on with just me before the episode started recording. You said, <laughs> I have some opinions on where polo can go. <laughs> Everyone knows like, okay. opinions. That's what you know me best for if you've ever... <laughs> Talk to me online or otherwise. I've got opi- I've got opinions, and I'm not afraid to tell anyone. You've taken up a lot of space in the polo like world as far as playing competitively, having the light foot business, designing a frame. You know, I think your opinions are valuable. So let's let's get them out there. Innovating knee oh, cups. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know if that's an innovation. Yeah. I don't know if that's an innovation everyone will get behind. I just hope they don't ban it. So um, you can have a fully custom every single piece of your bike. You know, uh, I'm getting close. I'm getting close. <laughs> yeah, there's a few. Um, yeah, so yeah, I guess I've seen. I guess I mean, uh, were you guys playing pre obstruction or interference? Okay. That was our first year. Our okay. first year of playing was when obstruction came out, okay. and then it was really confusing because nobody in Ottawa even knew that the rule existed. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and there was a bit of confusion about how it was how it worked early on so it's probably yeah it was difficult for you guys to sense what the sport would have looked like prior to that rule coming in but um i can tell you we watched the mr do yeah 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 it was different it was different and i'm not going to say it was better or worse it was different and because i don't think better or worse is really and i I, I would say that ottawa probably played with obstruction for two years after the rule came out because nobody knew how yeah. to change the game and it was just setting picks and doing you know i don't, we still I don't I think have it took a while to change. Yeah. that come out all the time and um one that just comes obstruct. to mind in our club is her name's carol and she's an obstruction specialist like that was her role <laughs> back then yeah. and she hasn't played in five years so she comes yeah. out and she's obstructing everywhere i mean we let it roll at pickup yeah but, um, that's kind of a that's kind of a really nice way to introduce i guess i guess what what the issue with a rule change is proposed or enacted you know is that it takes strategies that that have been successful in the past and it kind of like, de, you know, defangs them. Um, and the idea of bringing in the obstruction rule was to defang pick, pick, shoot, part, you know, strategies, you know, pick, pick, solve, solved game is the, is the phrase in hockey, you know, which was popularized mm-hmm. by, um, you know, there was this website at the time I've been trying to get it rehashed or at least get the text back from it. Um, it was called hating on bike polo made by one of the Lexington bike polo crew. And, and, and he made a really great analysis of the problem with, with the pick, pick, shoot, because it was essentially what, what was happening at the highest level of the game. The and Beaver Boys. The Beaver Boys, exactly. It was how, you yeah. know, pick, pick, shoot. And and essentially what we were what we're discussing at that point is 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 choosing an aesthetic. It's like how do we want the game to look? Um, and 
the reason we're saying how do we want the game to look is because not a lot of people get to get to see how it feels at that at that, at that level of the game you know like at the, at the final at worlds you know most of us are just saying how do we want it to look very few people get to ask how they want it to feel because most people are never going to play in that game and i firmly believe that um that when we make a rule set it really has to look at that that particular level of com- comp- competition as being the zenith you know that's the paragon of of the sport and and how the rule set plays out at that level at that level has to be in our has to be forefront in our minds when we consider rule changes or, or you know whether rules stay the same and how we adjudicate them and and so that's not to say we can't have other ways to adjudicate the game at different levels but if we're talking about the rule set as it stands in North America or Europe um, at that at that level that adjudicates that last game at every big tournament I think what that game looks like and how we feed that information of that aesthetic and whether we like the way the game looks has to influence the future of the game. And and we've got an example in Bike Polo of us looking at a final and saying, you know what, when we analyse that game aesthetically, it's missing something and it's missing something that we could fix. And and we have an example of a glaring omission in, in the rule set where if we, you know, we realised that we changed that thing and it changed everything. It opened up a whole lot of... You know, I mean, I was loath to say that it was a you know better or worse rule, but I mean, I think it would be remiss of me not to say that it has improved the game, you know, remarkably for everybody to be less at risk of you know physically interacting with someone just out of a random occurrence. You know, you're just not getting you're not getting hit off your bike all the time. That's a good start. One of the major things we heard uh, just talking to a lot of players in Toronto is people actually came to our club and said. Uh, you know, they, they thought like, oh, it's so cool. You guys play like, like people that hadn't even played polo mm-hmm. yeah. noticed that it was less physical yeah. over time because, you know, I imagine it used to, I mean, I don't know what, it, I, I wasn't in Toronto pre-obstruction, but mm. I can imagine knowing the yeah. level and the octane and the skill of the players there. It, was, yeah, like, it probably didn't look like, like a, an approachable thing at all. Like yeah, I, I can, for sure. I, I made, I made the mistake of inviting a bunch of friends to come out when the mongrels were in town. Yeah. I was like, Oh, it'll be really cool. We're going to have a good turnout. And I got my <laughs> friends right. to come yeah, out. Yeah. They took one look at the game and they're like, this is nuts. Mm. And I'm like, well, these are literally the world champions. Like, don't, you know, if you come out on a Wednesday night, it's not going to be like that. Yeah. But that's always, I can always imagine in an obstruction era, you know, it is like, Oh yeah. On a Wednesday night, people are going to knock you off your bike if they can get by you. Yeah. Right. And that, you just, you know, you can only take so many hits, right? Yep. And you don't want to burn your, we don't want to cannibalize our, our mm-hmm. player base. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I guess the question is, you know, what are the things that, you know, what kind of aesthetic do we want out of the sport? You know, how do we want it to look? Uh, and how do we want it to feel? Because obviously that it's it's not that I'm saying those, you know, obviously we have to see how those rule sets affect the entire game. But but I think the aesthetic at its, its its height, you know, like what we can achieve as an aesthetic at the very end of the spectrum of performance, you know, that's best witnessed in those final games at Worlds. And having watched a bunch of those games up close, like we all have, um, I think I think I'm starting to see that there's a couple of trends that we could discuss putting a lid on. <laughs> Or, or, or limiting the success of certain tactics because they're probably okay. going to go in a certain <laughs> direction. And so, and I, I think the best way to start here is to is to basically say that Polo has short games, right? You know, the, the final at Worlds was twenty minutes. You know, so and 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 the the scoring margins and the total goals scored in any game are quite low right now, right? So one of the things we can derive from that is is that 
is that as a function of total goal scored, every goal is quite valuable because there's not many goals scored. So each goal is a large fraction of, of the total goal scored in any game. And that has the effect of meaning that every goal is incredibly valuable, right? So it's, so, and what that means is that defense, defending against those goals becomes incredibly, incredibly important. They're hard to score. And once you, once you lose one, it's, you know, you can sit on that lead um, because the game only lasts for 20 minutes, right? So you've, you've really got to, you know, each goal is worth a substantial amount in terms of the whole game. And you can, you can, you can, you can easily win off a one goal lead, especially if you turtle up, even with the crease in place, you know, you play defensive. Watch uh, Mosquito versus uh, More Sugar from the last NAs. Yeah. If you want to see how to sit on a one goal lead. <laughs> 100%. And I'm not saying. Shot clock might be a good idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, yeah, I mean, what am I saying? It's, it's you know, but basically let's, <laughs> let's start with the idea that defensive, defensive strategies are incredibly successful, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now what's, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is, is that you see the final at Worlds and one of the most talented players on the planet, Morgan, you know, sits in goal. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, he'll, he'll listen to this and, you know, um, and he'll say, you know, I, I, I like sitting in goal and he does. And that's fine. I'm not saying that you shouldn't sit in goal if you like sitting in goal. Um, but, but in terms of choosing an aesthetic for the sport, a subjective aesthetic that you want to see, you know, when, if I want to see this perform, you know, I like to think of them as like performing puppets. You know, if I want to, I want to see these people who I know are clearly the best in the world do something. Do I want to, if I were the puppet master, would I put Morgan in goals? And it's like, well, no, I wouldn't. What I do is I, I put him out on the, on the court playing as fast as he can, you know, like in that moment in the Timaru final, when they're playing three up, trying to score that last goal, um, I want to see that the whole game. Right. But the limitation to that is that if the cost of a goal is so high, then there's, there's, there's too much weight on that, on that defensive strategy. There's too much draw to playing defensively. And, and so what this has led to is, is a defensive strategy, not only in defense, but it's also led to defensive offensive strategies. And what I mean by that is uh, the most defensive offensive strategy, or like, let's say the least risky offensive strategy is a long shot, right? You know, if you can shoot from a distance, then the the reason you might do that is because you don't have to commit positionally to being too far in their half. Um, second of all, you know, it's just if you can shoot from a long way away, it allows you to cut, not only cover the ball when it returns, maybe you get the playback off the off the rear boards. Um, but second of all, you know, it 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 just doesn't leave you positionally kind of screwed, and. And what you what you face in those situations when you're playing two up, which is like, um, like let's say, I guess like mongrels play two up essentially. They play two up circling. Yep. You know they're looking mm-hmm. to they're looking to cut down on those those shots where maybe someone gets past them and gets in front of a wheel. You're not going to get far away from Dodie or, or Emmett if you know if you if you yeah. get in front of them, they're going to hustle you and try and take him out. You're really going to have to get a long way in front of them to get a clean shot off. But if you do happen to get a pot shot off, you know it's well Morgan's going to stop it. Right. And that's, yeah. and that's great. But the problem with that is that, you know, you're leaving one of those great players in goals. So the question is, well, well, what can we do? What can we do to, and you see this in Europe, Europe is, I think one of the things that I've realized is when you go to Europe, everyone's using smaller and smaller mallet heads, right? It's getting, it's getting like hundred mil, you know, like it's getting smaller and smaller, you know, and whereas in America, they've stuck to, you know, 120, 115, or what you might call like what, six and a half inch or seven, I don't know, but, but mallet heads in Europe are getting smaller. And 
Well, I mean, what does that say about the game? It says that shot accuracy is more important than defense. You know, this is a, this is a game theoretic consequence, right? So like it's a selection pressure. It's like an evolutionary environment. You know, we're selecting for better strategies and, and the better strategy in Europe at the moment is a more accurate shot. And we can see that because people who are succeeding are using shorter mallet heads and they, they, they lead to more accurate shots. I mean, exaggerated. I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to shoot with a 10 inch mallet head, but the error from the face of the mallet is impossible. So shorter mallet heads yield straighter shots, but shorter mallet heads are almost useless for defense. They're useless for stopping balls. They're, they're not grading goals, much to Morgan's chagrin. I don't know how he does it. Um, and so that, that's a sign to me that if you've got a, you know, if, if people are selecting for shorter mallet heads, then shots are becoming way more valuable than ball handling. Because let's be honest, you know, like your ability to handle a ball over your front wheel or do intricate, you know, maneuvers is, is, is definitely, it's a short mallet head definitely is a deficit in that regard. So I can see that ball handling has been sacrificed for shot. And, and now I'm thinking, well, why is that? Well, because people don't want to come close to the net because it's too, you know, it's too risky. So they prefer to stay a distance from the net. And what that's leading to is, is essentially, I would say it's, it's too many long shots, not enough creative play. And, and as a result, um, that's causing people to stay in goals and it's no one's playing three up and no one's, no one's, you know, in terms of an aesthetic of the game, I mean, I might get outvoted here, but I would prefer to see a game. Uh, I would prefer to see an environment that leads to people making their mallet heads longer. I would, I would say once people start, you know, once people hit the bottom of that trend and we start coming back, I'd say that that would be a good indicator that dribbling has increased in its usefulness and ball handling and, and all those things that a larger mallet head is useful for. I think that would be a good sign that we're moving in the right direction. And so yeah. what changes do we make to the rule set? What do you think, what can we do to correct these trends and to get, you know, those ball handling maneuvers back in the game and make the game less defensive, right? Let's get three up sure happening thing. again. What can we do to create that change? Do you think? So, I mean, being a pretty serious ref, I think we have to, whatever rule change we make, we have to, it has constraints, you know, it has to be refable. It has to be actually enforceable. It has to be refable. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so, I mean, I have a, you know, everyone's got, you know, heaps of ideas, but I think the simplest one, um, and it's a little hard to explain. I, I don't know. Sometimes it comes out. And so I'll repeat it a couple of times is that if I'm in uh, let's say I'm in your half with my team, we're three up, right? And I lose possession, right? But we're still in your half. So I'm in my offense. I'm in my offensive half. I'm trying to score on you guys. We're three up. Now I happen to lose possession for a second, and my goal's open because there's three of us up, right? You take a pot shot, and that shot originates in your half, while all three players of my team are in that half. No goal. Okay, so basically the rule would be: you either have to take the ball across half before you shoot. Or one of the one of the players that you've just dispossessed, you know, one of the three up team have to cross back into their half. So what it essentially means is you don't pay a disproportionate price for playing three up. Should they dispossess you for a quarter of a second and then get a wheel and a quick shot off? Um, I would take that shot every time. times out of hundred. And that's and that's the yeah, right thing to open do. That, I'm taking the shot. It's the right thing to do, hundred percent. Like it's even the right thing to do in terms of you're facing that goal. So even if you miss, you know, you're probably more likely to get to the ball. You know, and then, you know, so it's the right thing to do. But I think if you do, you know, I think you need to earn that goal. And and it's not that you haven't earned it. It's not that you haven't earned it if you get an accurate shot off. You definitely have earned it. And this is what a lot of people say. You know, they're like, well, I've earned that right to that shot. 
look, you have in the current rule set, but the only limitation on earning that goal is, well, what's the aesthetic? You know, does the aesthetic lead to creativity at that at the height of competition in the last game of Worlds? Or does it lead to two-up play um, with one team totaling up to play defensively and, and one of the best players in the world in goal? And, you know, I don't want to... I'm not, I'm not haggling on Morgan, I think, you know. But no, I think they're they're playing strategically correct. An interesting, they are playing like, strategically correct, yeah. I think an interesting that, side story happened at the fall ball in tournament that Mongrels used for Lexington warm-up. Oh, and yeah, yeah. The interesting thing about, about this, that yeah. tournament is that they, they didn't, didn't win. win. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Ghost yeah. Ship won, right? <laughs> yeah. Kayla, Tony, and Caleb. Yeah. And the reason for that was, and I remember actually hearing the Mongrels over talk about this, they played three up 90% of the time in that tournament. Yeah. And the, I remember... Uh, they were arguing on the side, one of them saying, it's not working. Like it, this doesn't work. Doesn't and work. I remember we it, played it, them. And, yeah. and it's worth, it's worth noting. We we're playing on Toronto, which is like probably the biggest court, biggest court the yeah. longest polo. It's a, it's a hockey rink, like yeah, a yeah, full yeah. hockey rink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Three up is never works in Toronto. <laughs> yeah. And when yeah. we played them, I mean, I remember getting a couple breakaway goals against them mm-hmm. just because of bad turnovers. Right. And it's yeah. interesting that they go down to Lexington that year. They stick someone in net basically the whole time and kind of invent this style. Mm-hmm. Um, not invent, but they really stick to this style and they still have and it's been incredibly successful. But yeah, it's interesting that I'm not at taking that anything away from them. Yeah. There's they no tried way. to really tried to play three up and experimented with it and it wasn't successful for them, which speaks to what you're saying. Yeah. Right now, David, I think. And you know, to their credit, um, or specifically to Emmett's credit, I mean Emmett and I have had lengthy discussions about this because I, I tried this on I tried this idea on with a few of the better players before I kind of spoke about it publicly and and Emmett was the first person to come out publicly and say this would be a great change. So you know I, I've I've brought this out on the Facebook rules mm-hmm. groups and and you get the you get the usual you know long shots of what the game's about X Y Z you know you get those you get those aesthetic choices being made but you know. Um, to Emmett's credit, you know, he, he's a man of few words publicly on Facebook, but he, you know, he came out and said, I think this would be a great change. It would, it would it'd be that, you know, he said, Conser- uh, conservatism is conservative, which I thought was a great indictment on such a progressive community um, <laughs> because it is a conservative move to not move, you know, to not make a change like this. I think staying the same, it has its risks, you know, and, and those risks are obvious. And, and for someone who uh, Emmett has a unique position because he's, he's successful at the current you know, with the current rule set, with that current technique that I'm obviously, you know, being critical of in an aesthetic sense, but I'm not being critical of it in a competitive sense. I mean, it's, it's obviously it works. I mean, no one would debate that that works. Um, you know, if you get two teams who are out there who are prepared to take the opposite, you know, you know, if you've got two teams that are prepared to play three up, then that's, that's fine. That's, but, but if you've got one team who's prepared to, um, you know, it's a prisoner's dilemma type thing. You got, you know, if you've got one team who's prepared yep. to play the slightly more successful strategy, then, you know, it's a, it's, it's not, it's not a race to the bottom, but in a way it feels like, you know, in terms of the way mallet heads are going, we are racing in a direction and it's not necessarily a race to the bottom. That's probably a little, a little bit dire, but it is a race towards that, you know, shoot, uh, hit, run and shoot game, which, which I don't want aesthetically. I don't think there's an objective argument against it. I'm not, I'm not proposing there is an objective argument against it. I'm proposing that, uh, that we chose an aesthetic you know, in the game previously by bringing in the obstruction and now the interference rule, that's what it's called now. I think we chose an aesthetic. It wasn't object, it wasn't an objective decision. And, and we could rightfully do that again in other domains. And I think this would be the first one. I don't want to divert and have, you know, all the other ideas about increasing the size of the crease and doing all, I think those, <laughs> I think the crease is hard enough to adjudicate. Um, 
I don't want to, you know, I think that also has its problems, but this one seems to me like the easiest to ref, the, the most practical, uh, and would have the largest effect on any size of court. Um, so that, that, that would be my idea. That's, uh, that's, that's a really change. interesting. I'd want to yeah. like, I need to see it before I can, really I got it. I got to think it's like a reverse offside. Yeah. It's such an yeah. interesting rule. Like I, yeah. the only thing I can think of off the top of my head is would it incentivize some kind of trap defense? Where you like <laughs> wait to cross the line, but then you'd be giving them an you open. You can just take the ball over anyway. Then you're giving yeah. them the breakaway. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You can just take the breakaway. Then I think that with all these rules, I mean, I think we, I think until we play them um, extensively, we don't you don't see what happens. You know. Yeah. Uh, you, I mean, you, I'm I'm down to try that rule at pickup and see what the game plays like because sure. I, I think that ha- that's what that's what any I would hope any proposed rule change yeah. people would. Play it at pickup. See what actually happens on the court. Yeah. Play test it. You know. I think this is a literally, literally game theory. <laughs> yeah. Pickup. Pickup's a great place to to kind of sandbox things, but but you really need competitive. Um, you need something to be on the line to see the see the outcomes of these rule changes, yeah. and specifically with regard to teams that use these strategies that contravene this rule, or, or let's say wouldn't be as useful within its within its context. You know, it's it's having those teams play at that level with a different rule set that you'll see innovation and certain stuff happen because it's, and you know, there are plenty of teams who don't use this strategy. I mean, I, I, I would, I just refuse to sit in goals and obviously it's come <laughs> at a deficit to my, um, to my competitive, you know, ability, you know, Cordova was a perfect example. I mean, Brandon sat in goal and he was sick. Um, but yeah, we, we, I mean, that's probably not a good example, but, um, but yeah, I don't really want to sit in goal. I want to, I want to see the, I have an aesthetic belief and I'm prepared to say it's a subjective, uh, it's a subjective claim about what the game what what the game would look like if we could change certain things about it. And yeah, I think it would be better, but that's just an opinion of mine. Like I'm certainly, yeah, I'm willing to say that it's it's a choice about what the game might look like. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's maybe worth a try, but that's that's my suggestion about the future. Um, definitely worth a try. But I don't know. Otherwise, I think... Yeah, I think the other thing we could do is lengthen the games. You know, we we could easily reduce the the value of each goal by just making the games longer. So, I mean, yep. squad or bench or whatever your inclination is towards towards that that would probably help. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you want to get really controversial, maybe making the open end of the mallet head slightly smaller would be a nice thing to do. <laughs> um, yeah, um, or at least measuring them. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. That's just that's just a jibe. Um, yeah. I don't know, like scooping, I think scooping, I kind of did scooping a lot because I thought it was cool and then got to 2015 North Americans and it was like 100 degrees in Lexington, Kentucky and the ball was like a donut and my whole game was in, my whole game went out the window and, yeah. and I was just like, yeah, I'm not going to do that again. Live by the scoop, die by the scoop. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think everyone goes through the phase where they love the scoop and then they yeah. go to like a big tournament and they're like, it's oh. hot. <laughs> Yeah. It's really hard to do this and it's hot outside and like, yeah, people are smacking my and... mouth and I'm looking down and they're getting mm. at me. And... <laughs> Scooping might be the single most uh, like activity in polo that new-ish players, like people that have played for a year, spend way too much effort trying to learn mm. to never ever actually see a tangible benefit for yeah but like you always see people practicing it like i think it might be yeah. the single most practiced it skill in polo cool. that never it's translates different. into games it does look, it does cool. look, it does look cool. really cool and, it's look yeah. and speaking about aesthetic and it's um in its defense it does look cool and the other thing is directing a pass from a from a clasped ball is much That's easier cool. accurately you know yes. if you're if shooting straight passes is still 
you know, I, I mean, uh, I always say to people, the smallest goal on the court is your teammate's mallet. You know, like, I mean, the goal is kind of big, but if you really want to shoot a straight pass across front wheel or backhand to a moving player through a gap, you know, that's tough. Like straight, straight passes are hard. And we had a and, whole episode about it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and so, and so this, and I can understand the inclination that new players have to clamp down on the ball and then direct the ball using a scoop. But the problem I have with that is your teammate is I've got no idea what you're about to do because I can't, <laughs> I can't predict where the ball's going to go based on your prior, the prior position of your mallet. When it comes to a straight pass, I'm my, my, my mind is tracking the movement of the mallet. But when you're doing this, like, weird drag thing. I'm just, I got no idea. And so it's not, it's not just about the efficacy of the, the, the pass. It's also about what are you signaling to your teammates? Um, and I think if you're, you know, you can't telegraph to them at all if you've got this, you know, wily mallet moving left and right. But you're also not telegraphing to your opponent where the pass is going to go either. <laughs> this is why you just got to have a podcast and talk to, talk to your teammates all the time. There's a little bit of, there's a little <laughs> bit of that, but I think, um, yeah, there's a little bit of that, but there's, there's, there's a, there's a limited amount of places the balls the ball can go in a pass because they can read where your other player is, so they can screen the pass mm-hmm. anyway. That's true. That's um, true. So what, what I'm talking about is, it's not so much it's not so much where you're going to pass it in a in a straight you know in a straight line. It's not so much where you're going to pass it in location. I know the broad area you're going to pass it to me because I can only be in a certain you know, but it, it depends. You know, like sometimes I just can't, especially when people do it behind their rear wheels. I'm just like I got nothing. Or they do like. Yeah. And I, I'm, and this is the problem. I'm criticizing things I used to do a lot. So, and and it sucks because like, I, you know, I feel like it's like an, it's an infection. You give it to people, and then you like, you know, how do I, how do I convince you out of this? And I, I, I sometimes taught people to do things, and then six months later, I'm like, damn, I shouldn't, shouldn't have infected them with the scoop, with the scoop. But that's bug. the cool thing about bipolar is that the game is like constantly evolving. It seems like for now, at least, and yeah. like what's good one month, we decide, oh, actually, maybe that wasn't as good as we thought you know, For six sure. months later. Yeah, and yeah. That's one of the really cool things that we still got going on. It's not like a solved game. That's for sure. No, which is no, really definitely cool. not. I think it's, yeah. pretty, I think my, I guess my allegation with the defensive strategies is that we're approaching, we're approaching a kind of a few, like you would say like wells, like where there are the, a couple of effective strategies at the very height of the yeah. game. Um, and to beat those strategies, you've got to be a lot better than those players. And, the, you know, you just aren't, there just aren't players in the world who can play a less effective strategy and beat Morgan and Doty and and Emmett. You just, you know, you have to, you have to put it up, like leave it all out there in the best. You not only have to be the best player that you can be, but you also have to use the most effective strategy. So there's only a couple of players in the world who could go out there and have a chance of beating them if they were playing defensively and you were playing three up. This, this, you know, I mean, maybe it'd be possible. I mean, yeah, I could you think could of a few draft the dream team, maybe. I don't know. They yeah, then you'd have to, together. but then you'd have to like force them to practice. And, you know, yeah. I, all the players who I think are dream team, you probably couldn't force to practice. It's wild. It sounds maybe. unlikely, <laughs> but I'd be really excited. And eventually the Mongrels will lose, right? And we'll all get to see what. Or they'll just drop the mic and wander off. Oh, like yeah, that first. could happen too. I, I hope that doesn't uh, happen. I want to I see who hope comes in and takes the No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think they've still got a few in them. Um, if not as a team, then definitely separately. Who knows? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, David, I really want to thank you for coming on the pod. This has been such an amazing conversation. I mean, this right, is going to be our longest interview, but for sure. That was definitely and, the goal. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> filled with really insightful comments and educational uh, bits and pieces for all our listeners out there. So just, again, thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of that wisdom with us. I really appreciate you guys inviting me on, or you folks, I should say. And um, and yeah, thanks for the time and keep doing it. And as I said, if there's 
Yeah, if there's anyone out there who wants to post a sub 20 second time, I got, I got, I got some fun gifts. Hey, there we well, go. I, awesome. I've got some solo polo motivation now. <laughs> All <laughs> Thanks right, again, folks. I really now. appreciate it. It was lovely to meet you. Bye. Well, we got through that one. We're done. We've reached the other side of the interview. And I, I pretend like it's a chore, but it really wasn't because that was like such an insightful and in-depth conversation. Like Alex said at the onset, we learned a lot talking to Dave. I mean, sometimes you just get into a conversation and that was one of those that was one of those conversations that honestly we were just talking and an hour and a half went by. Yep. And it got me thinking so much because I don't know, my Enforcer 1.3, I really dropped my front end down a lot when I switched to this bike. And I've noticed that sometimes when I'm trying to do a wheelie turn or get out of a situation, I do burn out my rear wheel. So maybe I'm too far forward on my bike. Maybe I got to experiment and play around with that a little bit. There's got to be a happy medium. But Dave got me thinking about it. Let's uh, move things along because we've already kept these people here a long time. And I'm sure they want to get to everyone's favorite segment of the podcast. You know what it is, the mailbag. Cha-ching. That's right, Gavin. It's the mailbag. Uh, this <laughs> this week, we only have uh, one email to read, and it's from none other than Justin. You know Justin by this point. Uh, he writes, what's up, Polo Podcast? Welcome to another edition of, quote, Random Thoughts by Justin, unquote. High-low was a great idea for content, by the way, like buzzer beaters and breaking saddles with my hip. Shout out to Liam, Brett, and Ashwin, for their attempts at making a better tournament than I. Haha, <laughs> just kidding. Great job, and remember that your efforts are always appreciated. Also, Liam and Gavin, thanks for the effort you too put in on Season 1 podcast, and good luck on finding a third to help with the work. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oof. He's really calling you out there, Alex. Yeah, what do you got to say for yourself? I mean, I don't think Justin's seen the behind the scenes. I feel like I pull my weight, though... That might not be true, especially given the last couple months and the 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 delayed release schedule. Uh, I I might be largely responsible for that. We share the load, you know what I mean. We really <laughs> share the load, and Justin seems to think that Rumble by the River was better than any other Canadian uh, tournament. How would you guys rank the tournaments? Are you going to take that on, or are you going to pass that ball back to me? Oh, I will definitely take that on. I think Rumble by the River has the best video of any Canadian tournament right now. <laughs> the uh, only one. Oh, the, yeah. only, the, the only one. one so far. Uh, currently, as of this recording. And uh, no, but I... Okay, hold on. I'm just going to, off the top, power ranking. Um, I played two tournaments this year. One of them was organized by Justin. The other one was organized by the other two people on this podcast. Mostly Liam. Mostly Liam. Ah... Uh, you can say Rumble. I won't be offended. I was going to say Rumble, but now I'm thinking about it. You know, I I don't even know if I can do a power ranking. There you go. No, okay, okay. Rumble. I think Rumble. Okay, Poutine the Net, I think, was probably the best tournament we had in our region this year. I wasn't yeah. even there, and I think I can say that. Yeah, you're right. And then I'm going to say Rumble was better than NSBI just because you didn't tell the hockey players that they couldn't have the court on Sunday. And we showed up on Sunday and the hockey players were there. That's true. And that happened in Montreal too. It's a common theme. Yeah. But uh, Rumble was really cool because of, you know, it's like a new tournament and like a new environment. And it was kind of like a field of dreams, you know, build it and they will come. (laughs) Everyone showed up not knowing what to expect. We didn't, Justin's first time organizing a tournament basically by himself. And we were all shocked by this venue. If you're listening to this podcast, Rumble 2 is coming. This is an amazing party tournament. We all camp beside the court. There's a river to swim in. There's a chip wagon that serves poutine. If you haven't had that before, come on up to Canada and try it out. 
because this is a really fun, fun party tournament. So and uh, it's close to the border. Like it's not a crazy trek into Canada to get into. Thanks. Thanks for the thanks for the heat, Justin. <laughs> there you go. Another great one by Justin, our boy. Um, all right. That wraps it up. Right, guys. We have anything else we want to say? Okay, here's the beer point for this week because we're bringing it back. There's a other podcast I listen to. They do this thing called Ethical Gray Areas. And I wanted to go over a quick, a couple ethical gray areas with you guys. Um, how do you feel about shuffling the ball to someone just so you can like lay a check? Like you like pass the ball to someone just so you can follow through with the check. that's dubious at best i'd say that's i don't even know if that's an ethical gray area i think that's just a bad thing to do like to a good offense you pass it to an opponent yeah you pass it to your opponent so you can check them um i don't know it's never occurred to me to even think about doing that usually because i'm just trying desperately to keep the ball what about (laughs) i think i think this is an ethical gray area that falls uh is a lot more common in our region uh, hacking the goaltender's mallet when they're not looking. Oh yeah, that's that's been done to me on numerous occasions. In fact, it's been done to me by a certain emailer into this podcast. It um, is his favorite move. Some <laughs> would almost call it his signature. And you know, move. actually, he proposed a um, it, it, you know, to add on to that, it was a thing where you shoot the ball, where you tap the ball lightly, and then go for the mallet, <laughs> or and to like sort of when they go to block it, you knock it out of the way. And we were debating about whether or not that was a legal move. It, it was hard to reach consensus, but it's illegal, by the way, because illegal. you still have possession of the ball. Because possession is defined as the player who last touched it is in possession until another player does. I've just if learned you pass to try part to the goaltender. Maybe this is the two questions coming together. If you pass it to the goaltender and then check, so, the so then you can hit their mallet. I guess if they touch it, if they touch it and try to control it and not clear it, you can then hook their mallet and tap it in. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're like pushing the ball ahead and then moving their mallet by hooking it so it goes between the wheels, that's goal interference. I feel like you should be able to hook someone's mallet. I think it's cool. Touched it yet? Even if like like you know the open court situations where someone's like doing the big wind up and they haven't touched the ball yet because they're trying to do a one timer. If Mm. you can like tap their mallet, like that's just a clean. That's just good defense. I I think think so, but there's a difference when it's the goalie. Yeah, I think they have must have special protections. The scenario I'm thinking about is when the goalie's in the (laughs) net and the ball is like very far away, and then suddenly somebody comes and swings at your mallet. That's well, uh, and you're totally not in the play, and you're like. What the hell, man? Yeah. Well, I, let it, let us know what you guys think. Is it is it allowed? Is it not allowed? Do you have any ethical gray areas in polo that you think people do that are like kind of rules dubious? Uh, maybe lobster trap could could fall into ooh, that. Yeah. Or another one is like right killing time when your team's up a goal with like three minutes left, taking the ball behind your own net and just kind of messing around back there. Riding circles around someone's offensive zone, going zoom zoom, Gretzky's office, Gretzky's office. Yeah, you could NASCAR, <laughs> Ricky Bobby. That, you could yell on that too, perhaps if you're um, in scrupulous character. Playing playing left-handed. Whatever okay. your opinion is on all these ethical gray areas, make sure you mail it into Northside Polo Podcast at gmail.com. That's Northside Polo Podcast at gmail.com because we'll basically read almost anything on the air. As long as it isn't hate speech, right? We won't put up with that. But anything else, 
we'll probably read it on the air or so, or some of the spam we get you know oh we don't read the spam from we get boss. some pretty good we get some pretty lucrative offers we get lots of spam but, uh, we don't read those out <laughs> yeah absolutely not. but uh until next time guys this episode's plenty long enough make sure you keep your rubber side down and just keep having fun on the courts because that's the only way to get better bye for now bye Goldilocks, where the crew? What's a boss supposed to do? Meet you on the polo court. You like YOLO, rock that sport. Take the mallet in your righty and the left squeeze breaky tighty. You all high and mighty. Every Thursday nighty. Wheeling, jousting, 3v3. Come on, rip that PVC. Courts, I grab a brew. Let that conversation stew. Wonder where the cuckoo flew. That bird up in Hillcrest. Swing and miss something